just for the Shocker soundtrack, I decided to pull together a super group. So I got all my friends from all these different 80s bands to jump in, and we created a band called the Dudes of Wrath. Wait, wait, the Dudes of Wrath, what's that? The Dudes of Wrath had two songs, and on one song there were certain people playing, and on, on another song certain other people were playing. So it, was, it wasn't just one group, it was more like a collective called the Dudes of Wrath. The Dudes of Wrath, epic yes. Name, yeah, epic name. Desmond called me. Now, he, he and I had been working on my record um, uh, that, had, that was on Geffen at the time, and Geffen was one of the big players in the in 80s rock, and a lot of different types of music. Um, but um, So he called me up and he said, would you like to sing on the soundtrack for Shocker? And I was like, hey, that would know, be cool. I'd get my finger in every piece of the pie of this film. you know." For the song Shocker, Paul Stanley and I sang the lead vocals, and uh, Vivian Campbell played guitar, and uh, Guy Man Dude played guitar, Rudy Sarzo played bass, Tommy Lee played drums, Michael Anthony and Kane Roberts sang background vocals. So that's a lot of dudes. Yeah. And a lot of rap. A lot of rap. When there's no more room in hell, the dead will start a podcast. and welcome to episode number 32 of No More Room in Hell. My name is Mike. Joining me, as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing, Venom? Greetings and salutations, ex-cons. I'm doing pretty good, Mike. How you doing? Pretty good. I also want to give a shout-out to our ex-con uh, listeners out there, if there are any. <laughs> I'm sure we have many, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> joining us always... As well, it's Derek. How are you doing, Derek? No more Mr. Nice Guy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And we have a guest for this episode, a special guest. I go back pretty long with this person. I think I first got to know him when we were both writing, actually, for the same horror website. So I kind of got familiar with some of his writing. Then I'm trying to think. He started... A show, I believe one of the first ones was Geek Fight, and I remember listening to that, and from there, he actually was part of the original lineup on Theme Warriors, then he started the famous Kiss the Goat, which went away for a while, but now it's back. If you don't know by now who I'm talking about, let me just introduce him. It's Jeffrey X. Martin. Welcome to No More Room in Hell for the first time and back to the podcasting world. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Hello, everyone. I feel like I should say a line from one of the movies, but I can't remember any. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, that's a short little preview for uh, your ultimate thoughts on them. (laughs) Let it be known. Um, yeah, so this is episode 32, we will be talking about the movies Destroyer and Shocker a little bit later. If uh, if you're familiar with those movies at all, you can already know 
what the link is between them, or not link so much as the similarity in between them. But before we get to any of that stuff, we're going to catch up with what we've been doing, including watching horror movies, playing stuff, whatever it may be. So, Venom, what do you got up first? All right, well... This weekend, I had myself an Asylum weekend. I checked out a couple of new films from the Asylum, most famously, you know, the the studio that brought us the Sharknado films. So I'm sure a couple of listeners uh, by now already know the movies that I'm going to talk about. The first one is going to be one of their parody films to potentially one of the biggest films of the year, you know, with theaters only being opened for part of the year. I believe Godzilla vs. Kong is still the number one movie in the, um, well, for the year, for for the calendar year. And um, with that, the Asylum, of course, had to bring their parody skills to the table, so they bring us Ape vs. Monster. Uh, yes, I said that correctly, Ape vs. Monster. Such a catchy title. Um What can I say? It's the Asylum. I mean, if you guys are fans of the Asylum, which I am... Um, for the most part, this movie is going to work for you. It's got it's got the standard comedy, the standard silly writing, the standard, you know, subpar CGI effects. But one of the reasons that I always that maybe not always, because um, I am going to bring uh, an asylum movie to the table that I did not enjoy. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, but for Ape Monster, Ape versus Monster, like I said, this one has a lot of the charm that Sharknado movies have, that some of the better Asylum films have. I know saying better Asylum film is an oxymoron to some people, but I'm still going to go with it. Um, you know, we've got some pretty terrible effects as standard for the Asylum, though I will praise them a little bit on the lizard effects. Um, uh, basically, this story, it's not necessarily a kaiju story because these creatures were uh, transformed into the giant monsters that they are now. One, uh, by getting shot up in the space and somehow getting, you know, in like infected with some kind of alien thing that basically just makes him gigantic. And then the other one, uh, the lizard ends up, um, drinking some kind of toxic fluid, uh, that the monkey was also that the monkey also had access to blah, 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 blah. Um, You know, obviously it culminates in a big battle at the end of the movie. If you've seen Godzilla versus Kong, this movie's not really going to bring much to the table for you other than it's comedy. Um, Because, you know, Godzilla Kong was fairly straight laced. They didn't really go for any intentional comedy. This one being an asylum film, of course, we have intentional comedy. Uh, We don't have a lot of, you know, the cameos or big name stars that we get from like the Sharknado movies. Um in fact, I don't remember if there was even a name actor. Oh, Eric Roberts. Haha, <laughs> Eric Roberts is in Ape vs. Monster. He's probably the only name in wow. the whole movie. So, um, like I said, if you're a fan of the Asylum, I highly recommend it. If you think Asylum films like Sharknado um, are just unwatchable, then there's no reason to give this one a chance. So, yeah, that's Ape vs. Monster 2021. Damn. Anybody else check this one out? No, I haven't seen it yet. I been wanting to check it out. Uh, I think yeah. you'll enjoy it. I mean, you enjoy that kind of, you know, uh, purposely, you know. Usually I always say that when people try to make a so bad it's good movie, they generally fail. Yeah. Um, something about The Asylum, though. They, they're they like the only studio that can consistently 
try to make bad movies that are entertaining and actually succeed. And Ape versus Monster is uh, no is basically, you know, it's an above average asylum film. Um, but yeah, I think Derek, I, I think you'd like it. It's fun for whatever it's worth. It's yeah. good to laugh at anyway. Yeah, I'll check it out. And I think it's on demand right now, so I'll I'll peep it yes. out. Yeah, check it out. We used to actually cover Asylum movies on well, episodes back in the day, just because technically, you know, if they were made for TV or just at least premiering on TV, and of course, when we say TV, we mean Sci Fi Network, because that's I don't know if they had an official deal with them or that was just the one network that agreed to air their stuff because <laughs> they were always on Sci Fi, but it got to the point where. There were just so many ones we didn't like that. We're like, all right, we're not doing this anymore because it just feels like we're forcing ourselves to watch them. Now, that's not to say we absolutely hated every single one, but we kind of got to the point where we're like, well, if if one of them has been out for a little while and people are saying, hey, it's better than your average Asylum Pictures movie, then we'll check it out. Um, I think we stopped around like whatever that abominable snowman yeti one was i i don't even remember the actual name of it but i pretty much know what to expect with asylum movies which is why in general i don't watch them anymore at least i just don't automatically watch them every time a new one comes out but i mean if if it's being recommended for the reasons you said i might you know throw it on randomly just to see what it's all about I mean, the asylum is an acquired taste. It's definitely not for everybody. You know, you got to kind of the asylum is the sheer definition of guilty pleasure type films. You know, nobody would ever call an asylum film, quote unquote, good. But millions of people still really enjoy watching these films. It could be, you know, an ironic uh, enjoyment, or it could be because they just legitimately have a good time. I mean, as stupid as the Sharknado movies are, I love all six of them, and I I, I, I own the box set in the steel book. I absolutely adore those films. I mean, when I'm in a bad mood, that's the kind of movie I pop in. Something that's some stupid movie. It's either going to be a Zucker Brothers movie or a Sharknado movie. Those are my go-tos when I'm in a bad mood. And this movie is no different. I, I, I'm definitely not going to say this is on a level of a Sharknado by any stretch, <laughs> but it's still a silly, fun little movie and a hell of a lot better than the other Asylum film that I watched that was released uh, in the past week or two that I'll talk about on the next round. Yeah, I so I remember when... I th- I think it's the first Sharknado, but I could be wrong just because I mean it's been years now. Mm. But I, I remember it was it came out and I thought it was okay. But then the following week, a different one, I believe by Asylum, came out called Ghost Shark, and I actually like that better. With cool dude, yeah, cool dude. <laughs> Maybe I mean I didn't know who the hell that was at the time. I barely know now just because of everyone else that post about his stuff but uh i thought ghost shark was like ridiculously absurd and it made me laugh with like every single kill in that one so i i uh i liked it better um than shark nano but you know that just goes to show that i mean there are certain asylum movies that are that that will be more enjoyable to me i i remember back then too there's i can't remember what it was, but this was like the big controversy because Debbie Gibson demanded to be referred to as Deborah Gibson because she's like, I'm not a, I'm not a teen pop star anymore. I'm Deborah Gibson, and people were having a field day with that. I think more people talk about that. Which one's the one where she fights movie. Tiffany? 
<laughs> that might uh, be the one. I don't know. I, no, like that I was said, like, these, these uh, all start to blend in with me. Now, that, I think that's one of the giant croc movies because I could almost Crocosaurus versus Mega Gator. Possibly, yeah. Because I, I, I have a vision in my head of Tiffany getting uh, taken down by a big gator. You know who directed that movie? Ah, uh, no idea. Harry Hart, the lady who directed Pet Cemetery. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> the new mutant sent pet cemetery, I guess. Yeah, uh, but you know, but my, my go-to is Piranaconda with Michael Madsen, Jim Aronowski, Gold. Nice. <laughs> I'm a fan of the multi-headed shark movies. They started with two-headed shark, and I think the last one was six-headed shark. <laughs> they vary in quality. <laughs> But again, they're fun. So what are you gonna do? Yeah. All right, Derek. What do you got? Well, I don't have any asylum movies uh, <laughs> this week, but uh, I got the stylist. I finally watched that. Wow, what a great movie! Uh, I really loved it. It's kind of like a mixture of Maniac with a female perspective version of Maniac, because you know this female who's a hairstylist. Is going mm-hmm. around cutting people's girls' scalps off and wearing them and shit. It's it's pretty fucking gnarly when you first see it. And of course, this started out as a short film back in 2016. I want to say the short came out, something like that. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I watched. It. Yeah, yeah, and then they just made a feature length version, made through like Kickstarter that was funded. Uh, same same uh, director, same uh, main actress. Great performances. Uh, Najara Johnson's uh, first film I ever seen in her was Contracted. Uh, she's fantastic in this. Uh, really great. Uh, yeah, if you guys are interested in like a female perspective version, like Maniac, this is kind of like that. It even has like a little relationship story, like Maniac does, which is really interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Mike and I talked about the stylist on Fresh Cuts. We both really raved about it. Um, I like a lot. Anybody who I highly recommend watching the short as well, because the short actually um, it plays like a prequel for this movie. Um, Later in the later in the movie, um, when she's trying on different wigs, one of the wigs that she pulls off is a blonde one, and she I, I forget the exact line that she says because she's mimicking you know the person that she got the scalp from. Uh-huh. And if you watch the movie alone, that line doesn't have any context. I mean, you understand what she's doing; she's mimicking someone else. But then if you go back and watch that short from 2016 or 17, um, it's that woman. Basically, it's the same, you know, it's the stylist, same actress, same everything. Yeah. But she's actually working on that blonde who she references later in the fi- in the actual film. So I just really thought that was cool how they tied it together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, because uh, I watched this via, I had the Arrow screener for this. Oh, movie. nice. And the screener actually comes with a short added to it. Oh, perfect. So, yeah, definitely if you guys are interested. uh it's probably going to be streaming. You can probably rent it, but if you guys have the arrows, like they actually have a streaming service too. Now I think it's like four ninety nine a month, which is, isn't too bad. Uh, it's on there too. So check it out. I'm pretty sure it's available on a streaming app somewhere. And I can't remember which one it was. Let's see. 
yeah, yeah, it might be on because I know there's that streaming service by the company that actually puts their own movies up, like Rent, or you can if you have like a subscription to their distribution. But I can't remember what it was. But yeah, I I like the stylist a lot too. Um, I didn't know really what know what to expect going in because I didn't know much at all. Um, we did it what a month or two ago on Fresh Cuts, and I, I I would say as of right now, it's probably in my top ten of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're just we're just approaching halfway through the year, so it's hard to say for sure it'll be there by the end but i think right now yeah definitely oh easily easily in my top 10 might even be in the top five but i'd have to review my list but yeah it's one of the few nines i gave this year so far so yeah mm-hmm. good stuff yeah i definitely yeah. agree kind of reminds me of maniac i thought i had a little bit of a, a may in there yep. yeah yeah uh, it's like a mixture of may and maniac it's actually a good comp I even like messaged Carly after you should check out the stylist. You might really <laughs> like it. <laughs> yeah, I think the only complaint that we had uh, when we reviewed it on Fresh Cuts was just the telegraphing of the end. Um, we, as far as the three of us on the show go, we all saw the ending coming. You know, the actual, you know, the bride walking down the aisle and then the groom removing the the veil. Like we we predicted that a good fifteen twenty minutes before it happened. So it actually made that last scene feel uh, drawn out. I know they were going for tension. They probably were figuring, you know, most people aren't going to be that savvy to pick out that ending. But, I mean, it's a pretty obvious ending when you think about it. Uh, Everything that she's setting up for, blah, blah, blah. Even everything that she says and does when she gets to the wedding. The questions that she asks certain people. It just it just points right to this is exactly what's going to happen. And then when it does happen, if you were one of the few who actually picked it out, it just makes that whole walking down the aisle scene painful because it's like, oh, my God, OK, I know it's coming. Just do it. I know it's coming. Just do it. Damn it. Not to say that the ending isn't good. It's actually a great ending. I, I do enjoy it. It's just that um, the filmmakers kind of telegraphed it a little bit. So, yeah, you know, uh, they, they kind of maybe like 15, 20 minutes early, uh, earlier in the film, you kind of, most people paying attention probably picked out that ending. But it, like I said, it doesn't necessarily take away from the quality of the film. The film is stellar. I, I absolutely love it. From a filmmaking standpoint, from a creative standpoint, the actual, the writing and performances are all great. Um, I just wish uh, that they didn't telegraph that ending as much, but still great movie, highly recommend, easily a top 10 thus far. Hell yeah. <laughs> Agreed. All right. Uh, X, you got something you want to tell us about? Yeah, I want to do something that I hardly ever do on a show. And, I mean, I rant a lot, but I kind of want to rave about this movie. Um, it's the slasher movie Initiation. Ooh. Ooh. Now, yeah. on, the, on the surface, it kind of feels like your basic killer on a college campus sort of movie, but it goes a lot deeper. It's got a lot to say about cyberbullying and Greek society on campus and the trauma of being called out as a victim of sexual assault, that whole victim blaming thing. There are a lot of nuances here, and I don't want to give anything away because I really want you to watch this movie. Uh, The director is John Berardo, and I've never seen anything he's done before. I think he's just done, like, shorts before this. Um, 
But he uses the visual conceit of having text messages pop up on screen next to characters. So it's kind of like, you know, those computer movies like Unfriended or whatever. But what's great about using the text messages is it kind of keeps everything locked in real time. Like, you, you know what characters are doing or where they are when they're not on screen. That's fascinating to me. Um, but the main reason that I think Initiation is great is because it – it, it does something that slashers have kind of gotten away from, as far as I can see. Most slashers recently have been um, urban legends or uh, sequel characters or clowns or fucking hillbilly redneck cannibals, something like that. An initiation goes old school. I, you have no idea who the killer is, and there are red herrings galore. There's at least twice where I thought I knew who the killer was, and I was completely wrong great script. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I also thought it was really funny that the killer's mask looked like Box, the the robot from Logan's Run. You can buy that <laughs> shit. You can, you can buy that shit at Dollar Tree. That was really great. Uh, but that's minor. The way the killer dispatches their victims is incredibly gruesome. Such great kills. I was super impressed by this movie. Right now, it's it's in my top five for the year. So find it, watch it, dig it. Nice. Yeah, I do want to find it. Now I gotta figure out where I can find it. Because maybe. Yeah, I was gonna say because you're not the first person I've actually heard talk about it. Um, I haven't heard a ton out there, but I what I have heard is positive, and then you giving it the seal of approval isn't hurting it either. So. Yeah, I need to track a copy down because yeah, it's a. Yeah. It looks like it's available on VOD right now. Uh, uh, uh either five ninety nine or six ninety nine. Doesn't look like it's streaming for free anywhere quite yet. Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, because I think the slasher genre is something that it seems like the format. It's. I don't know how to. It, it seems like it's a harder one to do. Um, in you know in the modern times just because it it feels like so much has already happened with it and there's so much retreading of covered ground i mean i know it's that's not just a slasher genre but uh sometimes when you get something that's nice and old school and it's just really well done you're you're just happy and ecstatic that a movie pulled it off so if that's what the initiation does i can't wait I think it embraces technology in a way that kind of subverts what's been going on lately because, you know, in old slasher films, think of how many old slasher films could have been like 20 minutes long if they hadn't cut the phone lines. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Now we have cell phones. And it's like, oh, well, shit, we're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no cell service or whatever. Um, but this one with the text messages all the time, I can't say that word, messages all the time. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it's really cool and it feels modern and vibrant and i really dug that sounds dope man yeah check that one out yeah it's actually on my watch list since it it just dropped i think a week or two ago so yeah nice all right that puts me up next and i will go with one that actually i knew nothing about didn't even know it was in existence until uh, a week ago, or it, let's see, it's probably a little over a week ago now, on Joe Bob's last drive-in on Shutter, he premiered a movie called Fried Berry. 
Um, I don't know what the hell to make of this movie other than I got a kick out of it. I know it's not a movie for everyone. I knew that 10 minutes into it when I was seeing live reaction to the movie. Cause anyone that watches a lot, the last drive and you know, there's, there's kind of like the casual fans and then there's like the hardcore fans that'll, you know, be live tweeting or commenting on his stuff and the movie as it's going on. And because fried berry wasn't a movie that was well known among really most people at all. Uh, yeah, there was lots of reaction going on to it. I would say it was probably evenly split. Uh, this was just one hell of a weird ass movie about, you know, a pretty uh, uh, scummy dude addict that uh, goes around town. Uh, hi all the time, but there's a bigger reason for a lot of the stuff going on in the movie. I don't even know how much I want to give away about what went on during the movie other than to say that I was laughing the whole time. And you might think, well, does, I mean, how good is it if, if it's unintentional comedy? But it's it's a very, I would say it's, you know, a mix of an experimental film style, but you know, if you can just kind of embrace what it's doing, I, I think people will get a kick out of it. Not everybody, apparently, though. There's lots of people that hate it. So can I recommend it? Probably to half the people out there. The other half, I'll say, watch it anyway, even if, you, if you're not going to like it. Um, but how has anyone – I know some of you guys have seen uh, Fried Berry. Venom, did you watch it yet? I have not. I have uh, not. Okay, Ven or not Venom. Uh, X, you watched it, didn't you? I did watch it, um, and I had a really good time with it. Like you, I laughed out loud a lot. And while it was going on, I um, tweeted the director, and I asked him how much real direction he had to give the dude who played Barry in the movie. And he said, that guy's not a trained actor, but he has a tendency to mimic. And while he was acting during the film, he was actually mimicking the director. Oh, wow. That's really? Hilarious. But yeah, that's, 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 that's a hell of a thing, man. <laughs> By the way that I see like people reacting to it, it seems like it's this year's greasy strangler. Oh, that's dangerous then, because Greasy Strangler was in my top ten for that year. I love that movie. I adore it, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's. I, I think Greasy Strangler was much more purposely like absurdist comedy. Where mm -hmm. I don't know if Fried Berry. <laughs> I would say uh, it's not comedy really at all intentionally I, I i gotta i found just comedic elements in it just because of the actor's performance i thought he was so good and the fact that you know he's not a trained actor that he was just trying to do things on the fly and come up with his own method for the way he was acting i think there's things that you would find funny in it even if it's not supposed to be making you laugh and i'm sure some people were horrified and didn't know what the hell they were watching and there's of course an element of that but the good thing is since it's on shutter i'm like i think anything that's on last drive-in as long as they retain the rights to it then you have the option to either just watch the movie or the last drive-in version um so i would just you know if you have the extra time i would throw on the last drive-in version because for something like that especially the movies where you don't have a lot of background knowledge on 
um, it's kind of cool, you know, the Joe Bob segments to see, you know, what he says, what he, you know, he'll give insight on the making of the movie, um, little, but you know, his usual Joe Bob stuff, obviously just when it comes to a movie that like, you don't know anything about then it feels like almost all the information he's providing is new and fresh and interesting. So that's how I would personally watch it. If, if you're able um, but yeah, that's my first one up. So Venom, back to you. All right. Well, now is going to be the second half of my Asylum doubleheader <laughs> for the weekend. And unfortunately, this one I'm going to consider a below average Asylum film. Uh, this is another one that just dropped, I think, last week. Um, yeah, May 21st was the release date. Um, and of course, that is Aquarium of the Dead. Now... I've already spoken about how much I love the Asylum, and for the most part, I really enjoy their movies. They have a certain amount of charm, a certain amount of heart um, that a lot of other B movies don't really have. Well, unfortunately, Aquarium of the Dead does not have that charm. Um, I, I mean, literally, as I'm watching it, I'm just like, you know, I have my face in my hand. I'm just like, this is not very good. Even in an ironic way, this movie isn't fun or enjoyable. There is almost no on-screen death. Um, it feels like a TV movie. It doesn't even feel like a... I mean, obviously, it's the asylum, so it's not like it's going to have a theatrical feel to it necessarily, but... It doesn't even IMDb doesn't even call it a horror film. It's they had they have it as an action comedy, and you know what? I I'm gonna say that is very accurate. It is just an action comedy where the action's not very good and the comedy's not very good. So unfortunately, this is one that I'm not gonna be able to recommend. Uh, the basic story of this one is, of course, takes place at an aquarium. Um, they end up getting an infected octopus into the uh, facility. <laughs> Somehow the octopus gets out of his tank. Uh, they're able to figure out that the octopus is actually reanimated um, because of its white glossed over eyes. At first they thought it just had a virus, um, you know, that was making it more aggressive. But then they figured out that it was actually dead. And then, of course, it spread to the rest of the animals in the aquarium. So hilarity does ensue. Uh, you get a pretty decent um, shot of a some crocodiles running around the aquarium, giant crocodiles. Uh, one scene of a guy, you know, getting impaled by a walrus. Uh, yeah, that's the quality we're talking about, folks. Um, so unfortunately, as I said, Aquarium of the Dead doesn't really have the charm of Ape versus Monster even. And even Ape versus Monster, I barely consider a, an average to above average uh, asylum film. This one stars uh, Vivica A. Fox is probably going to be the only recognizable name here. And yeah, Vivica, she must owe money to somebody at the asylum because this is like her third or fourth movie with them now. And somehow she continues to do them. So, uh, you know, either either she's married to someone who has something to do with the asylum or is or is somebody either she owes them money or they owe her money, one or the other. But, yeah, it's interesting to see, a, you know, an actress who, you know, no more than 15 years ago was like an A-list actress. And here she is pretty much a, a steadfast uh, alum of the asylum. So, Take that with, a, a, you know, however you'd like to. But, yeah, this one, even with my love of the Asylum, this is one I can't really recommend. It's currently sitting at a 3 out of 10 on IMDb, and that's probably being generous. So, yeah, Aquarium of the Dead. I'm going to assume no one else has seen this, and I applaud you all for that fact. No, my, 
my my co-host, <laughs> my co-host Matt actually was talking about it. He's like, I liked it. I'm like, Matt, what the fuck is wrong with you? Man, like I said, I I've already you know kind of gushed all over about the asylum. I, I I genuinely enjoy their films, but I just had so much trouble with this one. Like it's not funny, it's not tense. Uh, the CG is of course terrible. Um, it you know the the store the basic storyline is ridiculous. The acting, the writing. I mean, there's there's nothing about this movie that I can praise, uh, which is saying a lot because for the asylum. I usually am able to praise something about it. Either it made me laugh or, you know, some of the effects may have looked less shitty than usual. But there's just nothing positive I can say about Aquarium of the Dead. This is a hard avoid for me. Um, This one is also currently available on VOD for $3.99. Please do not spend your money. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it unless we have to make Mike watch it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll. Uh, maybe you could make uh, you know another show. Watch it for Patreon or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll just no. I'll just Torture be like, him. fuck it. I'll be like, Devin, you don't have to watch it because you already watched it. But we'll just do yeah. it as a show one day. There you go. Because I'm never watching this shit again. <laughs> it's only an hour and twenty five minutes, but it felt like it was three and a half hours. <laughs> it was just Those so plotting. Well, <laughs> one of the movies we watched tonight felt like it was fucking seven hours long. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, so, yeah. Avoid Aquarium of the Dead, folks. You're not missing much. You don't have to suggest that twice to me. <laughs> um, all right. Derek, what do you got? I actually just finished watching, we'll talk about this one next first, The Boys from County Hell, another movie I know you guys cover in Fresh Cuts. Just checked it out. Didn't even know it was an Irish movie. I'm like, okay, I like Irish horror. And it's an Irish vampire movie. I like those, too. Uh, the other one that I know of is, like, From the Dark from a few years ago, which I really liked. Uh, yeah, this one was actually kind of fun. It was nice to see John Lynch in this movie. <laughs> uh, I recognized him right away. I'm like, nice, John Lynch. That's awesome. Uh, one thing I have to critique, damn, do these... <laughs> Some of these characters have thick Irish accents. I thought it was an Irish boy with my cousin's boyfriend, who, husband, who's actually from Ireland. First time I met him, you know, like, what the fuck did you just say, buddy? You know, some of them look, you know, you think there's some thick, hard Irish accents within this movie. And if you're watching on Shutter, I'm like, where the fuck's the closed caption, motherfucker? <laughs> you know, you know, but uh, I still, you know, after a while, I still got the gist of it. It was like usually more during like the more talky scenes in the beginning. I'm like, what the fuck did you just say? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> it gets straightforward, and I actually kind of liked it. It was kind of like a little unique twist on the vampire film. And mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of callbacks. I love the beginning one where it has like this Taurus, and he's like, don't go to the moors. I'm like, what movie's that from? <laughs> you know, there's a lot, yeah. you know, and then at the end, fucking Dream Warriors plays. I'm like, this is fucking awesome. Yeah, I mentioned that on Fresh Cuts that during that final bar scene, Dream Warriors is playing on the G. On the G- it's great. Uh, yeah, it's fun. You know, I had fun with it. It's a very unique take on the vampire film that I haven't seen. But I'll, I'll check it out again. I definitely. I actually might pick this one up when it does get released on disc, just in case it has closed captions. 
So I can see some of those begin the scenes. I'm like, what the fuck did you just say, motherfucker? <laughs> exactly. Um, what was his name? The dad. Uh, he was one of the hardest guys to understand in that film. Holy shit. Uh, but you know what? I, I actually really did enjoy that film as well. I like that they, it wasn't you know your standard vampire movie. They kind of changed the mythos a little bit. Um, they also, you know, reference Bram Stoker and, you know, during the time of him writing Dracula and how, you know, potentially, uh, the novel Dracula was actually, uh, you know, inspired by the vampire in this film, Abertak. Um, and actually, uh, during Fresh Cuts too, while we were reviewing it, I actually, uh, looked up some information that is an actual real Irish vampire legend that they believe. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, that he is the original um, vampire, uh, superseding all vampires, you know, outdating Dracula, blah, blah, blah. So, sorry, guys, I keep hitting my mic for some reason. I'm, I'm, uh, you got me excited. <laughs> it happens. I'm talking about movies you like, I know. There you go, yeah. yeah you know. But, yeah, I thought this was good. I, I, I like the way they, you know, subverted some of the expectations of your standard vampire movie. I like the gag that they did with the sunlight. I won't say anything more than that because it, it comes kind of late in the film, but... I, I thought that was kind of cool. I thought the reaction of the star when the thing happened was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I liked that it was a different kind of vampire movie. Definitely recommend. That's a high recommend for me. Yeah, and you know, you know, just this is not really a spoiler, but I like the idea of them being buried with the stone. Yeah. And yeah, the first, yeah. And the first thing that I thought about was Rawhead Rex, another Irish movie. I'm like, go. really? And they even digs it out like Rawhead Rex. <laughs> I'm like, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. I I definitely like when you get movies that localize the horror icons to their area and what their local folklore is because it feels like uh, you're getting something new. Uh, it, it's like new and familiar at the same time. And not a lot of movies all the time go for that. They try to just give people, you know, exactly what they expect. Don't throw uh, different wrinkles into it. But I, I like uh, people, you know, when there is local legends or ways to give uh, different takes on the monster that, audiences as a whole might not be overly familiar with i think that it's uh it's neat to to see that especially when they pull it off and yeah i thought that movie was pretty good at doing that yeah for sure it's definitely one i recommend if you just want to have a fun time yeah. like i said though you, you just be prepared for some heavy irish accents folks oh man yeah get, get yourself some subtitles <laughs> Uh, all right, X, you got another thing to talk about? Well, kind of building on what you were saying about local folklore and bringing that into movies. I'm a real sucker for fish-out-of-water movies. Um, it's just fascinating to me to see people kind of get dropped into cultures or belief systems that go against their own raisin. Like, think about the reporters in Ty West's The Sacrament or any Italian cannibal flick where – you know, the cast pisses off the native tribes and becomes the other, other white meat. That's why I like Death of Me uh, with Maggie Q and my least favorite Hemsworth, Luke, because they get trapped in Thailand and there's a storm coming and there's no boats and their luggage gets lost or whatever. So they go get drinks and the next morning they can't remember anything that happened and their hotel room is trashed and everything's just a real confusing thing. Um, and that happens to me a lot. 
a lot. Usually I'm drunk and I'm posting shit on social media that I got to go back and apologize for. But these two find a video where Hemsworth is buggering Maggie Q like on the town square. And then he snaps her neck and buries her. And then it gets fucking weird. Uh, this is a Darren Lynn Bowsman movie, and I'm a really big Bowsman fan. And it's nice to see him direct this movie because it's 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 uh, it's outside and it's green and there's the sea and it it doesn't have that kind of grime filter that you know is in every single Saw movie he's ever done. I haven't seen Spiral. Don't fuck it up for me. I haven't <laughs> seen it yet. But I thought Bowsman did a good job on this movie, and it's kind of a it's a tight kind of gory mystery and it's also very cool to see alex esso um whom you probably remember from starry eyes she's in it she's really good the ending lacks a little bit it's not really ambiguous but it's kind of huh doesn't make a whole lot of sense but you can kind of logic your way out of that before the before the credits roll but yeah i mean i'll recommend it i had a good time with it just because i like bowsman and alex esso yeah, I, I actually been curious on this one, so I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, yeah, I, I like Bowsman when he directs things outside too. Like, actually, I'm actually a huge fan of the Barons that he did a f- bunch of years back. The That's Jersey a great Devil, movie. the Jersey Devil one. Yeah, I yeah. really like that one. Yeah. So yeah, I'm curious on this one. I mean, yeah, I haven't seen Spiral yet, so don't ruin it for me, guys. <laughs> Well, don't listen oh, to Fresh Cuts, then. Yeah. <laughs> next next up for me is something I just saw in the theater. It's Spiral... No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Damn it, Merriman. <laughs> no, but I, I, my next one is something related, and it's because... Well, partially because I've seen Spiral, but two, I was listening to uh, Cut to the Chase's Saw retrospective, and I think uh, the day after... so. Basically, my podcast listening situation now is all kind of weird because, you know, for those that don't know, I'm sure I've mentioned it plenty, but I've been working from home for a while now. So my actual podcast listening has just been reduced because, you know, there's just more stuff you have available to do in the background when you're working from home. So what I'll do now is when I take walks after work, I'll throw them on Stitcher or whatever and put them at like... I don't always do one and a half speed because sometimes that just is too sped up, but I'll usually do the 1.25 and either I usually get through most shows either in one or two walks. And I was listening or I finished up their saw retrospective and then Friday at work just by chance, you know, I was kind of flipping around on the program guide and for whatever reason, HBO zone um, was, marathoning the first seven saw movies so i was like well i'm not gonna sit here and watch all seven because you know i have other stuff i want to get to and it was uh last drive in so i was kind of working out the program i was like all right well the first three will kind of take me to the end of the work day so i watched the first three saws for the first time in a long time uh, now i i've seen every single saw movie in the theater some of them i've seen again since uh but as far as just revisiting the early entries in the series it's it's been a long time Uh, it's just it's not and it's not because i don't like them i i 
I really like the early entries into it, especially the first one. I, I, I think the first one's pretty incredible. Actually, I, I think it's very much different from where the series goes. And, you know, if you look at the first three, it's kind of like the, the Jigsaw trilogy because um, that's, you know, where he's still the primary antagonist, um, even though he his lineage kind of continues on. But... You know, revisited them. I still pretty much have the same opinion of the first one. Really like it. I, I feel that uh, the the first one is a lot less like trap based than the franchise went. You have the you do have traps in it, um, but you stick with like the two uh, characters uh, that are trapped initially pretty much throughout the whole movie and it's like a mystery detective story you're trying to figure things out uh and then of course the twist at the end that everyone knows about by now um the, the second one the second one seems very polarizing a lot of people don't like it i i like it but you know kind of it's almost like an escape room type atmosphere to it because everyone's thrown in the quote-unquote house of horrors and have to figure out how to get out um, and then to me, the third one is really where the the scope of the uh, the traps just start getting much more grand and like thought out to where like how much time did you have to put into the planning of these things? Because wow, I mean these are these are starting to get pretty elaborate. Um, and and as the first three, I, I still think they're pretty strong. I, I will say though that you know if if. The franchise. I was actually talking about this in the Fresh Cuts chat a little bit with some people. If if uh, if they ever did things over, um, I, I would say that the the subplot with Amanda becoming the apprentice, but then not really being the apprentice, that did kind of feel like rushed a little bit because it seemed like she went from like lo- uh, loyal loyal servant to jigsaw to oh my god you're not the right one because you won't do anything you're not listening to anything pretty quick like if you and at the time of the franchise or at the time i i could see why it was like that because for all they knew three might have been the last one so they had to get it out of the way that you know she was failing and he had a contingency plan but as the franchise goes on, then it's like, man, if, if maybe they could have fleshed it out. Like maybe she could have been the apprentice for more time and then slowly become like the the one that wasn't right. And, and you, it's revealed over the course of two or three more movies that he had more contingency plans in place. But like I said, that that's something that it's hard to ding it too much for at the time just because uh, yeah. I, I'm sure with a franchise like that where there's so many installments – each one that comes out, they're like, well, this might be the last one. We never know. So, But overall, yeah, I still really like uh, the first three above most of the other ones. I think it takes a little bit of a dip after that. And, and um, from memory, like the rest of them, I'm going off memory. I think six was really good. Seven was uh, – I don't remember it being that, that good. And it gave us the fan service ending everyone wanted, though, at least, I guess. And then I won't even talk about Jigsaw because I've only seen it once, and I just thought was it was okay. Trash fire. Yeah, I don't remember oh, liking it too much. I, I mean, I didn't think it was bad, but I, it just felt like, oh, they brought back the franchise and for this. And then there's Spiral, which I won't talk about because yeah, the obvious things, reasons. 
thing is, the thing is, with you know, every Saw movie they they came out every year, but then Jigsaw took seven years, and that's the fucking movie they gave us. They had seven years to think of another Saw movie. <laughs> For whatever it's worth. I mildly enjoyed Jigsaw because it didn't feel like a Saw movie. It was different. It didn't have that Darren Lynn, um, you know, sped up circular camera crap that we get at the climax of every single Saw movie. It, it felt different. So, yeah, admittedly, it's not a great film. I, you know, I can admit that absolutely. But after not having Jigsaw for a few installments, or at least not, you know, living Jigsaw, it was nice to see him be a major part of the film again, and you know, including actually being in the film for a few major scenes. Um, admittedly, like I said, I mean, I can only remember one trap from that movie right now, in all honesty, and it's the laser collar, because I remember really enjoying it when it happened, but... Uh, Personally, I don't think there is necessarily a quote-unquote bad Saw movie, but I also understand I'm kind of a loyalist to this franchise, as we talked about on Fresh Cuts. You know, Same as Mike, I've seen every one of these in theaters. Um, obviously, some are better than others, but even the weakest one, which... You know, it's usually between five and seven are, you know, most fans weakest entries. And I can still watch those happily, even though, you know, I'd rather watch Saw 3, which is my favorite of the franchise any day of the week. But eh, I like them. I don't care. I'm unapologetic about my love of Saw. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that the nature of the Saw movies is almost like you, what you could say about slashers in general or like even if the overall movie is weaker than other ones if it delivers on some of the things you want like good kills and stuff you can at least say okay i had some fun with it even if overall as a movie it wasn't that great and i think at least most of the saw franchise if not all of it uh delivers on that front but yeah absolutely yeah for sure but the the funniest thing with saw one like i love saw one a lot, but there's one scene that cracks me up every time because every time I look at it, I'm like, come on, they could have got it. When Danny Glover is taking cover from gunfire behind that small banister, it's like his whole body's still sticking out. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm too old for this shit. Fuck, you said, you know, I'm covered. I, couldn't they get me a bigger banister? I can't even hide behind this shit, you know. <laughs> He was probably uh, you know, a week away from retirement, so he probably figured he was going to die soon anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty much a Saw loyalist, too, uh, like you, Venom, but for me, I mean, I enjoy the traps. I think the kills are great. Um, pretty sure it was Jigsaw that had the motorcycle trap that was kind of awful. Um, but for me, it's always been about the interconnectivity of the stories and how it kind of slowly mm -hmm. reveals itself from, from chapter to chapter. That's what I've always enjoyed about those flicks. Yeah, for sure. for sure. And that one thing that Mike was saying about like the Amanda character, they actually explain away in like some of the later sequels why she was even that way in Saw 3. Yeah, so exactly. I actually really like that about Saw 3. I, you know, I understand Mike's point about maybe taking their time with her character turn, but the fact that it happens in the same chapter where we actually lose Jigsaw actually makes is part of what makes that movie my favorite. Um, I also have the biggest, the most empathy for any Saw character ever was the Doctor from Saw Three. I yeah. wanted to see her survive. Like you know, I felt bad when the ending of the movie occurred. I did not feel bad for the one person who actually survived the damn movie. But whatever. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, that one, for me, that one has the most emotional content, especially for, because it's the third chapter. So by that point, by a third entry in a franchise, people have developed, you know, their love of a certain character or whatever. And obviously, you know, for for people outside of the horror community, I know it's odd for them to hear us say things like we love Jason, Freddie, Michael, you know, these guys, these mass murderers, basically. But um, yeah, Jigsaw is one of those guys that I absolutely adore. So Yeah, yeah. The reason that the Saw 3 thing with Amanda works for me is because she was such a central character in Saw 2. So yep. seeing her go kind of that, you're my number one guy, down to you've completely fucked this up, was a really nice arc for that character, I thought. I didn't think it was rushed. Yeah, I mean, least. you know, if you watch the whole franchise beginning to end, it may maybe come off that way. But Mike made a good point about... You never know how long a franchise is going to be. You never know, you know, if this is going to be the last one. So you kind of have to give the fans some kind of uh, serviceable ending. That's true. Um, but I, I don't know. Ultimately, I, I feel like, yeah, Saw 3, I think, benefits from her quick uh, turn there. And then we can move on to, you know, the kind of the Hoffman years, if you will, after that. So because I, I, I don't know if I really wanted to even spend any more time with Amanda. You know, we spent two and a half films were there. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I like Shawnee Smith. Don't get me wrong, but you know, everybody outstays their welcome. And Amanda definitely did. Yeah. And I actually really love soft War too. You, I know Mike's like, That's yeah, the guy. Kind of, and I, I love the twist that it takes place the same during soft three. I love that fucking reveal. It's mm-hmm. so cool, and you know Absolutely. that, and that the guy that survived Saw Three, that you hate Venom, he yep. doesn't last too long in Saw. 4. No, he does not, which <laughs> definitely makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember walking out of the theater after Saw Three, thinking, "God damn, I love that movie!" But why was the only person who survived the only person who didn't deserve to survive? I always hated that dude too because <laughs> he was that fucking asshole in Braveheart too. That was oh, that's <laughs> right, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> oh man alright Mike alright I think I was going to say something and then I lost like train of thought and then just let, just let everyone else go um, but yeah, yeah I mean just to close up the solid discussion yeah uh, it's, it's hard to really disagree with any of the opinions on it because it's a franchise I love and I just like the discussion on it kind of when you've had a franchise that you spent so much time with you know in a theater for everything and uh, you still see people talking about it that have just seen them or just revisiting them and it just kind of brings back the memories of that era where every year it was a new Saw movie and then paranormal activity movies kind of took over for that right which yep we're good for about a couple of them. <laughs> um, that's As a, a whole franchise, other yeah. So I'd rather watch Saw any day of the week. Oh, easily. Yeah. Easily. Especially those those last few paranormal activities where uh, I walked out of the theater with such a bad taste in my mouth walking out of those last couple. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the last one. The last one was just garbage. I, I really... Uh, 
It's like they make an entire franchise about uh, with the with the mentality of less is more. But then for the final chapter, they're like, fuck it. Throw it all in there. Oh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it, the thing with paranormal activity, I didn't even really care for the first one because I'm like, why am I just watching people sleep in a fucking bed? Yeah, I mean, I I think when the first one first came out, I think the uh, the the event nature of it really elevated the movie itself. Because when I saw it in the theater, it was when cities were just getting like maybe a midnight showing of it. It was before it kind of really went wide, and so there was like all this hype to see it at like midnight at, at your theater. And if you don't see this one night at that time, I don't even think people knew for sure if it was getting a wide release or not. Um, but it did cause the, you know, it did good enough at those midnight showings that they eventually added screens. And that was probably the plan all along behind the scenes, but you know, you're, you're well, hyped for that, something. That, and you, from what I understand, that was actually a legitimate uh, campaign. Like they they wanted to put it out nationally, but obviously because it's this little IP that nobody knows anything about, this little you know sixty thousand dollar movie, um, most national chains didn't really want to do it. So when they did the midnight screenings, they actually uh, at the end of the movie would give you a link and say go to this link and sign the petition if you want to see this movie in theaters. And it was because of that petition that eventually national theater owners were like, okay, it seems like enough people want to see this to make it worth taking up, you know, one of our screens for, you know, however many weeks. And yeah, it became a huge hit. So that, that, from what I understand, obviously, you know, we take everything we read on the internet with a grain of salt, but from what I understand, um, that campaign was a hundred percent legit. They, they had no legit hard plans to th- release it in theaters until that petition, you know, got filled up so quick. Yeah. I mean, that definitely makes sense. Cause I can see where studios might've been hesitant. Like if we go and put this wide and uh, no one goes to see it, we're fucked basically. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's the tiny little movie that could ultimately, you know, I, I could see why theater owners wouldn't really want to put it in there because it's, you know, it, it, like Derek said, it's it's just watching two people basically live their lives day to day with a lot of sleeping scenes. So. It's like watching somebody else's footage from their video doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first movie that seems like it was filmed on closed circuit. I just can't. I don't like any of them. I'm sorry. Just not a bit. No. Oh, hey, no problem there. The only the reason I watched it, kept watching it, is Katie had nice tits. Oh, I love Katie. I met her once. Oh, she's a sweetheart. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like the first two a lot. I, I like the, I, I the kind of isolated, not just the isolated setting, but even the story was kind of, when it was just Toby and this family, I liked it. Once we get to part three, and it actually turns into this more consorted effort where it's a coven of witches and everything else. It just kind of lost its scope for me. You know, it wasn't this little yeah. movie anymore. Now it's this big movie with, you know, hundreds of years of back uh, backstory and lore. And it's like, uh, now it's just every other, you know, witch movie that I've ever seen. So, yeah, I love the first two and the rest are, you know, varying degrees of okay. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, I I think as the franchise goes on, they 
they felt maybe pressure as the writers to like, oh, we got to up the ante. But then the scope starts getting a little too big and doesn't make quite sense or just it doesn't feel like it's the same story anymore just because it gets so overblown and convoluted although i did like the marked ones which was kind of actually yes it took place in the same universe but it still kind of felt like its own story at the time Mm -hmm. i thought that was like a great rebound because four was just atrocious like i was ready to say i'm not gonna watch another one because four (laughs) was so bad but then marked ones i i was like well let's see it's a new like family new characters so let's see what's going on and uh i ended up really liking it yeah it was but, better than uh, coming off yeah. the heels of four <laughs> you know uh, the only thing i feel there was no eddie guerrero ghost <laughs> no eddie guerrero <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, uh, I hope all right you your bonus uh paranormal activity coverage <laughs> yeah all right for our final round what do you got venom Let's see. Final round. Okay. Uh, no more Asylum. I actually watched a legitimate film this time. Uh, this one is another one that just dropped over the last couple of weeks. Um, no fanfare to this one whatsoever. I didn't really see any posters or trailers. Uh, the IMDB page for it is even fairly bare. Uh, just a short list of uh, cast and crew. Not a whole lot of information. Uh, but the film I'm talking about is The Jinn. And for those who don't know, Jinn is a Middle Eastern word for genie. So basically, um, I think our biggest cinematic Jinn probably would be Wishmaster, right? The Wishmaster series. They called him a Jinn. Um, so yeah, basically this is the story of a mute boy who just moves into a new apartment with his, uh, father after their mother, um, was, uh, was killed well, eh, without giving anything away. Uh, mom died and dad and mute child move into an apartment on the very first night that they're there. The boy finds a book in his closet that gives him instructions on performing various supernatural rituals and one of them is wish-making. Uh, he finds a couple of pages on making a wish through a djinn that he would summon. You know, it's basically like one of those silly games that internet kids play. Um, you know, the closet ghost or, you know, things like that. Bloody Mary, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, of course, this is a horror film. So, as we can already tell, the ceremony actually does end up working, except for the fact that the boy missed one very important step um, in his ritual, which, of course, then makes the rest of this evening a living hell for the child. Now, one of the things I like about this movie is that it, it's isolated. It it's, takes place in one night um, and one apartment. Uh, we never leave the apartment. And because the boy's father is a radio DJ, he is an overnight DJ, um, the boy is usually a, alone at night, um, you know, when, when he's sleeping or whatever, and dad usually comes home in the morning. I don't know, the boy is probably 12, 11, 12 years old, somewhere in that range. When I first saw dad walking out, I thought it seemed kind of weird that you would leave not just a young child, but a mute child. Because, like, how's he going to call the police or a fire department or something like that if something happens, you know? So, I mean, he'd have to do everything through text or Internet or whatever. So, I don't know, it, it felt odd that you would leave, uh, you know, a young mute child alone in an apartment. But, you know, uh, maybe he's been doing it for so long the kids are used to it. So, anyway, um, the kid basically has to deal with this gin on his own this entire evening. Um, and I'll give this kid credit. He's resilient. 
Um, you know, he, he's not a complete weakling, despite, you know, being your average, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old kid. Um, not a whole lot of effects here. We get a couple of, oh, we don't even see the gin until the very end of the film, literally at the finale of the film. Uh, we'll finally see the djinn in his true form. We do see the djinn in various other forms throughout the film where he's mimicking other people. Um, you know, most importantly, uh, the mute child's mother, who's no longer with them. You know, periodically the, the mom will appear, the djinn will appear as the mom, blah, 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 various gags like that. Um, this is a very just this is a little movie. Like I said, it's just it's isolated. Um, very, very small cast. I think the cast is maybe a total of four to five people. Um, actually, six. I'm looking at six names here on the cast list. So, yeah, uh, very small film. Um, it's not going to change the world by any stretch. It's your basic, you know, uh, supernatural kind of film. A boy awakens something he shouldn't have. He has to deal with it. Um, he, eventually, you know, he thinks that he dealt with it by the end. But, you know, who knows by the time we watch. So, um, I would give this a mild recommend, and I would probably only say that for people who are fans of supernatural horror. Um, it's not all, it, you know, it's not really gory, and you know, as I said, it, it, there's only one human protagonist in the movie, so you can already tell what the body count's going to be. So, um, you know, I would say go into this one with a little trepidation. But like I said, if you like, um, you know, supernatural horror, uh, small cast, isolated location. Um, decent writing, you know, I'm not going to say that anything about the film is stellar, but I, I think it's all above average we, and it's a nice short movie. It's only 80 minutes, you know, hour and 20 minutes long. I believe it is currently available on VOD. So yeah, I would give this one a mild recommend. Um, anybody see the gin? No, I'm curious on it though. Cause I really like gin stories. Like I was a huge fan of under the shadow from a few years ago, which is also yeah. Involves the gen kind of a little bit. It's, I, I yeah. feel like that one might be a little bit more accurate, but I'm not sure because I haven't seen this one yet. But, yeah, you know. I mean, this one's fairly color by numbers, you know. Um, I, you know, I, I described the action pretty much as you know, close as I could without giving away too much of the plot points. But I mean, we're dealing with, a, you know, we're dealing with a gen. We're dealing with a creature who grants wishes, but obviously there are repercussions to those wishes, wishes, yeah. uh, wishes, excuse me. So, you know, it, it's a fairly color by numbers, a genie story, but you know, for whatever it's worth, I thought they did a, a pretty good job with it. It's, um, you know, it, it kept me in suspense, you know, but the fact that it's a little kid, that, that sense of tension is, is even heightened because you figure what's this little kid going to do against an ancient, you know, evil, um, but he holds his own. Uh, I'll give him credit. And and he's a fairly intelligent kid. He's quick on his feet. Um, you know, the djinn definitely, like, basically isolates the apartment so the poor kid can't get out. But the djinn can only be at one place at one time, and the kid takes advantage of that throughout the film. So, like I said, smart, and, uh, smart protagonist, um, you know, and once we get our shot of the djinn at the end, it's pretty cool. It's, you know, it's not the greatest thing I've ever seen, but yeah. I, yeah, like I said, mild recommend. Go out and check it out. Yeah, I, I have not seen it either, but it looked uh, interesting from people mm-hmm. posting about it. And the poster looked pretty cool, too. Yeah, I so I, I guess, it, uh, yeah, I guess that passes a Dave Z box art test. <laughs> I think Dave Z would like this. Like I said, it's 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 just a little movie. It's nothing nothing too grand, nothing too major. But um, yeah, 
it, it's a nice little movie. I almost brought it to the table for fresh cuts, but we've actually got like three or four weeks in a row where we already know what we're going to do. So this one's probably going to end up being forgotten, but that's why I'm bringing it up here. So yeah, check it out if you get a chance. It's a quick watch. It, it gets to the action really quick. You know, the pacing's pretty good. So yeah, check it out. Sweet. All right, Derek, what's your final item? My final movie of the night is a little movie known as The Embalmers. Nice! I know Venom and me probably know this one because uh, Venom's co-host is actually the director of this from uh, In the Mic of Madness, Rebecca Reinhardt. Uh, yeah, it, it's a very indie movie. Pretty much the main gist of the story is it's about this family of funeral home. They run a funeral home. It's uh, two sisters and a brother. Uh, and they, one of the brothers has like psycho telekinetic powers where they, she, he could actually read dead bodies and the way that they died and the areas they died in and what they did before they died. And if they were bad people, they get repercussions and go after the other people that were part of the stuff that those people did or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting movie. There's actually a subplot that happens that leads into the climax of the movie. Uh, this is this is my probably my major gripe with the movie. It's not a bad movie. I, I actually enjoyed it a lot. But this is a thing that I see in a lot of indie low-budget movies where some of the scenes kind of do drag a little bit. The movie runs like an hour and 40 minutes. And I think there could have been like a few quick cuts here and there, but... Uh, I'm not going to give it too much deck. It's Rebecca's first movie, so, you know, it. I enjoyed it for what it was. I actually kind of liked all the characters. The main three characters were funny uh, as crap. And, you know, there's a lot of good references to movies that I know Rebecca likes. Like, I even messaged her after I watched this, are you a fan of Sugar Hill? And she's <laughs> like, yeah. And I'm like, I figured, because there's a character that kind of reminds me of a character from the movie Sugar Hill that, uh, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm getting Sugar Hill vibes from this, especially with, like, the setting is kind of, like, in a backyard swampy setting, some of the scenes in it. So I kind of got that feeling to it. I had fun with it. Like I said, I think it just ran a little too long, and they could have cut some things out. But, you know, I, I understand a lot of indie directors have this problem where it's their baby, you know? Yeah, and without studio interference, they're going to put everything in the movie they want to put in there, you know? So maybe if this was a studio film, they would have kept it under 90 minutes. But, you know, ultimately with indies, directors are, you know, uh, they have free reign. Yeah, and, you know, look, I said, you know, I'm not going to hold it to it. It's her first movie, and you know. But overall, I enjoyed how it went, and, you know, the characters are cool. You know, I'm not going to – the acting – it was a low-budget indie film act, and so you get various performances. Some were better than others. I thought all the main characters did pretty good for what they did. You know what I mean? They kept me entertained, and they had a, they looked like the thing that I like about these sort of movies. As long as it feels like that, the people involved in it looked like they were having a ball and having fun at least. <laughs> I could to get behind it. You know what I mean? Yeah. If it's like a miserable like indie movie where it looks like everyone's just fucking there for a paycheck then, yeah, those movies suck, you know? Generally, yeah. They're yeah. a lot harder to watch. 
But at least everyone looked like they were having a blast when they were making this one. You know, there's some good behind-the-scenes features on the disc that I actually picked up from Rebecca herself. So, yeah, I don't know if it will get a wider release, so check it out if it does. Yeah, um, I yeah, haven't gotten I... my copy yet. I got on the Indiegogo a little late, but um, I, I've seen a few clips that Rebecca shared, and yeah, um, I'm excited to see it. You know, it, it, it's indie horror, so you know I'll, I'll temper my expectations a little bit, but yeah, you know, I'm still really excited to see it. I mean, regardless, you know that they that the people who made this love the genre. You know, they obviously yeah. all have big presences in the. Uh, in in the community, so yeah, I'm very excited to see it. Yeah, especially when you see Rebecca's role in the movie, because she has like a small role in the movie. It's right. very interesting. <laughs> Let's nice. do it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to ask, like, how how is it available? But it's like a. Are you guys on early release for being backers of it or something? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's actually available, like, just to purchase yet. It would probably get like a wire. I could see like maybe like a company like Wild Eye maybe picking it up down the line. Sure. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. I mean, you know, we, we all know Rebecca and want to support her in her efforts, so I'll be happy to check it out once it's available. Yeah, exactly. We all supported Alex last year for his uh, Friday the 13th fan film, so it's Rebecca's turn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, X, do you have anything for our final round? I do, I do. I love old movies, and I love old Italian horror movies. It's really fun for me when I run across one that I've not seen before, um, especially when it's as fucking weird as Patrick Still Lives from 1980. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is like a pseudo-sequel to the Australian movie, Patrick, but it's got fuck all to do with the original. Um it was written by Piero Regnoli, who also wrote Burial Ground, The Knights of Terror, which I'm sure most of our listening audience has seen. You know, Mother, This Cloth Smells of Death, that movie. Um, oh, that damn kid. Right? Peter Park. <laughs> but uh, Regnoli also wrote a movie called Super Sexy Market. So there's that. Um, Patrick Still Lives um, begins with Patrick trying to help fix his dad's car. So he's out on the street. He's under the hood. Somebody drives by, throws a bottle, and hits Patrick in the head. (laughs) Now, this apparently puts Patrick into a coma where his eyes are constantly open. Is that a thing? I don't know. Getting whapped in the dome also gives him crazy telekinetic powers. So then a few years later, um, there are five people who get invited to like a villa resort. It's not like blackmail letters from anonymous, you know, come and stay this weekend or else bad things are going to happen. Something like that. Um, so to absolutely no one's surprise, people start dying left and right in the most graphic ways possible. Cause the guy who owns the villa resort is Patrick's dad, the doctor. And all the deaths are obviously Patrick's doing because whatever a death scene is about to occur, you can see like his fucking eyes superimposed on the film with this green filter and this kind of psychotronic weird ass theremin music. It's great. Also, there is nudity and horrific violence all over this movie. I mean, full frontal nudity, full backal nudity, uh, uncultivated bush, and floppy dong. It is all right there for you. Not to mention one of the most 
unsettling telekinetic rape scenes ever filmed. Uh, is there a fire poker involved? You better fucking believe it. So maybe this isn't something you'd show like during, you know, a confirmation ceremony, but there are people in a certain audience and you know who you are. This is the movie for you. It's kind of makes you want to scrub your soul clean with steel wool after it's done. It's probably in my top five sleaziest Italian horror movies of all time. Wow, I, I, sound, uh, I sound like we just got driving totals. <laughs> I, well, well, I just put this in my Amazon cart. Thank you, X, for that. It's a, nice. it's a hell of a thing. <laughs> Sounds like an adventure. Oh man! Uh, all right, okay. So I guess I'm wrapping it Are you up here. Top that, uh, Mike. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to, so uh, uh, I'm so not going to be able to top it that I'm not even going to be talking about a movie. I'm going to be talking about a video game I recently started playing. Oh, I thought he was going to be talking about The Walking Dead for all uh, Oh, God. No. no more Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually mentioned this last show that I had purchased it, but at that time I hadn't even started playing it yet. I'm still not that far into the game, but I was able to throw it on for a couple hours, and that would be Resident Evil 8. So far, so good. It looks beautiful on the PS5. Um, There has already been some pretty freaky moments. Um, Now, I never played 7, so I've heard that they kind of toned down the scares in this one. I can't be a full judge of that because, like I said, I'm only a couple hours in. Now, I will say... And this is just a personal preference. Um, I am not as big a fan uh, as the first-person POV, uh, especially for Resident Evil games. But you know, because I'm so soon into the game, it can probably there's a good chance that, that it'll grow on me as as the game goes on. It's just kind of a yeah, kind of like a culture shock to me because you know I'm I'm used to the older school. Resident Evil games, but you know, so far I like I like that you know they have kind of changed it up. It's not really zombie centric anymore or at all. You know, I don't want to say nothing is involved because I'm too soon into the game to get too much into the story. But um, man, I like it. I mean, these new consoles, the way games run on them, it just feels so smooth. Uh, you know, uh, Venom, you've you've played. I, have you got all the way through Resident Evil 8? Three times. Wow. <laughs> Three times. Damn. I'm on I'm on the Village of Shadows difficulty right now, which is an absolute bitch. Lichens <laughs> can kill you in one hit. Just the regular lichens, not the big ones. Wow. So yeah. But no, I I agree with you and I disagree a little bit. I, I am okay with the first person. Uh, perspective. I feel like that's the only way that they're going to make a game like Resident Evil more immersive. Um, the over-the-shoulder view of 4 and 5, I enjoyed when they were around, because obviously you know, Resident Evil 4 is where they got rid of the old classic uh, tank controls, you know, the old Stop terrible it. controls, which you know, <laughs> I mean, they worked for the game. It's not like I needed you know, a lot more dexterity, you know, from my character to get through the game. Not at all. You know, they gave you the mobility that you need. Um, But with, yeah, it seems like the first person perspective is just the obvious choice to go to, to be more immersive, um, you know, to give you that sense of realism. Uh, The scares, jump scares are way more effective in, 
in first person, especially like in Resident Evil 7 when the patriarch of the family comes crushed, crashing through the wall. That's just so much more impressive without having to look at my character at the same time. Um, I just find that the third-person perspective isn't as scary, I guess. And for a survival horror game, obviously the tension is uh, there. Now, having said that, Resident Evil 8 is a lot more action-oriented than Resident Evil 7. Resident Evil 7, to me, feels more like a true survival horror game in the sense that there's more actual hiding. There's areas of the game where you have to like hide under beds or in the closet or whatever, waiting for an unbeatable antagonist to go by. Um, those scenes are very tense. There's a lot. In fact, there's only one of those in Resident Evil 8. Spoiler. <laughs> there's only one scene where you really need to utilize hiding, and I like that. I like the fact that it's more action-oriented, because I am not a fan of stealth games. Uh, my wife is the big stealth game player, but like Tom Clancy games, shit like that, never did anything for me. Um, when it comes to shooters, I want a gun, and I want something to kill, and that's it. I don't need to worry about strategy, and that's why games like Doom are so much more for me, but... Um, yeah, I'm going to say I like Resident Evil more than uh, Resident Evil 8 more than 7 for me personally. I think the consensus is most people kind of like 7 more because 7 was the first um, of the first person perspective ones, So it was very different. Um, even like the animation style for the characters changed drastically. It just looked a little bit more realistic, um, yet still, you know, somewhat menacing looking. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, these last two games, I am an absolute Resident Evil stan. I mean, this is my absolute favorite video game franchise ever. Um, I play every single one of them, even the bad ones, even Resident Evil Gaiden, which was fucking awful, but I still played it. Um, and yeah, I, I, 8 is spectacular, Mike. You've got, you've got a lot, um, a lot ahead. I'm not sure how far you are. It took me... And and the thing is is I don't speed through my games. I'm I'm a I'm a collector, so I like mm -hmm. to like check every nook and cranny of the game. And it took me about sixteen hours to get through the game the first time. That's okay. with me searching for everything. My last playthrough I was able to get through it in nine hours. But that was just me ripping through enemies only, since I already got my hundred percent completion for uh you know, collectibles and all that shit. Um, yeah, I, but yeah, I think they. I think they're saying like average first playthrough. If you're doing it on standard difficulty, is about a ten hour campaign. But like you said, if you're searching around, I, I see. I'm not necessarily a collector of like everything, but when it comes to Resident Evil, at least, and this might be like I'm carrying over from from the old school games, and maybe I don't. It's not necessary for the newer ones, but. I would hate. I hated in the old ones when like you would start exploring different areas and move on to the next one, only to find out, oh yeah, there was some key ten rooms ago that you didn't look in a drawer, and now you're doing all this uh -huh. backtracking, having no idea where the damn key is. Where so sometimes they'll design it more linear, where like you still have to do a little bit of exploring, but it's kind of uh -huh. giving you visual and verbal cues that you're on to the next place. You actually need to be to like get something. So, yeah, I don't think that's as much of a problem with resident evil village. Um, cause the village itself is like the hub. 
So you'll be doing backtracking in the village, but as far as the boss, like the lords, um, I don't know how far into the game. I don't. I don't want to talk too much about storyline yet. But um, yeah, when you actually go to the individual lords' castles, like the first one, which I'm sure you've gotten to by now, Lord uh, Lady Demidresk, mm-hmm. uh, when you get to her castle. Uh, when you leave her castle, like when you're finally done with everything you need to do in there, you will never have to go back. There's no backtracking. No. So the only backtracking is in the, the village itself, which is just that little part of the map there. So, yeah, they definitely toned down the, the uh, you know, going back and collecting shit. I, I also feel like it's a lot easier to see items in this game. Like in, in previous Resident Evil, Evil games, uh, the icon to pick up something didn't show up until you were almost right next to the item. In this game, you can almost see it from across the room. You like you can a walk. little glowing white exactly. beam thing. Exactly, yeah. Like, I mm-hmm. like that addition. I mean, yeah, it seems like they're holding our hand, but, I mean, last I checked, video games are supposed to be fun. You know, I like a challenge, yeah. yes, but I still want to have fun first and foremost. And I feel like if you get rid of a lot of the arbitrary, like, button pushes, that's another thing. And puzzles, even. There's not a lot of puzzles in this game. Um, there, there's still a few, obviously. It's Resident Evil. There's going to be some. You're going to have to, you know, unlock some doors with a special key and everything else, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, they definitely tone down on a lot of the slower things that made Resident Evil Resident Evil. Like the, like I said, the backtracking, uh, the puzzle solving, things like that. The, the Resident Evil 8 is definitely the most action-oriented Resident Evil game. I mean, it's just you're, you're constantly firing at something. And it's nice, too, because if even if you're playing on standard difficulty, ammo isn't as big an issue as it has been in previous games. Like, um, a lot of people will talk about trying to conserve their ammo early in a game. Yeah, it's not even necessary in this game. On top of the fact that they let you craft ammo in this game, too. That comes in handy. I mean, in the middle of a boss fight, you can just pause, craft more ammo, craft some first aid, and then jump right back into your battle. That's convenient. A little unrealistic, but again, it's a video game, so who cares? It's, it's, but yeah. It's like flashbacks when I played Alone in the Dark for the first time, the way he heals himself by spraying his body. Ooh, uh, yeah. Ooh, the healing uh, in this one doesn't make sense until you get to the end of the game. Um, and, and it also explains... And, and don't forget, Resident Evil 8 is a direct sequel of Resident Evil 7. We're still, you know, with Ethan Winters and his wife Mia, you know, so it's still, we're still following them. It's really just a continuation of the story that started in Louisiana in Resident Evil 7. Um, and Mike, even if you haven't played Resident Evil 7, I would still recommend you do it. Um, it it's going to open up a lot of the story in this one. I mean, I'm not saying put down 8 and go, go back to 7. I'm, I'm saying after you're done with 8, go back and play 7. It's a fun little game. Um, like I said, not as action oriented, but it's just gorgeous. And the story, I, I would probably say seven is quote unquote scarier than eight. Cause that's eight has I, a lot I, that's more, what I've heard. Yeah. Eight has a I lot heard, more. I've heard they tone monsters. down the scares. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know about tone down. It's just that, like I said, eight, they really concentrated on the boss fights and ultimately boss fights aren't scary because you're, you're fighting a, fucking house-sized monster and you're trying to shoot for its point. That's, ultimately, that's not really all that scary. It's tense, but it's not scary. Um, they definitely went more for scares in 7 than 8, but I'm solidly a bigger fan of 8 for me 
because of the action. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the only time a boss fight ever scared the shit out of me is when Ganondorf became a giant pig monster in the end of Orcarina <laughs> or a time. I think I'm the like, only I am fucked. that really got me... Uh, oh, there were two, actually. The Mother Brain from the original Super Metroid, uh, when you think you beat her, but then she comes back with a full body, legs, and everything. It's like, oh, what the fuck? Like, that freaked me out. And then the end of the original Onamusha. I'm not sure how many of you guys are familiar with Onamusha. Yeah, it was a Japanese game that was released on PlayStation 2. I think there were four chapters, Onamusha 1, 2, and 3, and then the last one, something of dreams, sort of dreams or something like that. I don't remember. But, yeah, that, that boss, uh, there was a part of the boss fight where he goes from human to a giant cobra, uh, it just the way that they presented it, uh, it, it was kind of scary at the time. I mean, we're talking about a 15-year-old game at this point, but still, yeah, the original Onamusha boss fight got me too. But yeah, in general, boss fights against giants, you know, they're not scary. They're they're just giant monsters. You just want to avoid their attacks, shoot them in the weak spot, and move on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, my favorite game, Shadow of the Colossus. I know all about avoiding oh, big things. What a gorgeous game. I mean, that game is fucking art. It's that is a work of art. That game, um, I, I can't recommend that game enough for people. I, I know it's not as actiony as some people would like, um, just because you know a lot of it is climbing the colossus, uh, the colossi, uh, whatever plural of colossus is. Um, so you know, some people don't like that it's not as action oriented, but it is such a gorgeous game. Holy shit! And get the get the HD remake. It it it, it I I can't recommend that game enough. Yeah, the soundtrack's amazing. Oh, the score, and you can get the score on vinyl, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's a, this guy who did the score is the same guy who did the Gamma trilogy from the nineties. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Makes sense though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we missed talking about Monsters Venom, you could tell. <laughs> as far <laughs> exactly. as uh, Resident Evil 7 goes, though, yeah, I, I'm probably going to end up getting it, because I bet, too, that it'll probably go down in price if it hasn't already, just with 8 being out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, just, I, I picked it up uh, for, like, 30 bucks recently. Oh, cool. And that's just because I got a new console, so I wanted the upgraded one. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. You're playing it on PlayStation. Ooh. I'm playing it on Xbox. Um, now, since I have both, I, I, I try to look, I, I try to research my games before I buy them. Uh, generally, when it comes to like action-oriented stuff, I prefer the Xbox for its controller, and and usually I'll prefer the Sony uh, controller for like fighting games, racing games, things like that. So, um, but I'll still research. And this one ran. It it, ran, it runs at a higher frame rate, not frame rate, excuse me, um, refresh rate on Xbox. It only it only goes 60 on uh, uh, what do you call it PS5, but it goes 120 on Series X. So I just got that one for that pretty much that only reason. But I'm sure it looks great on both. I mean, it's Resident Evil. You know, it's going to look awesome. Yeah, I mean, as long as your 4K has HDR as well, it it really amps it up. Yeah. I'm I've been pretty impressed. 
Uh, all right. Yeah, well, that's the beginning of the generation. I mean, mm-hmm. usually when it comes to a console generation, we're usually four or five years in before studios are really taking advantage of the full capabilities of the console. Mm-hmm. So when, when games are this impressive looking this early, I mean, we're still in the first six months of this console generation. So, and the games are, I mean, we, you know, between like Miles Morales and Returnal and Resident Evil um, 8 blah 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 it's like these games look amazing so yeah i'm very excited for this generation yeah i'm sure the new ratchet and clank that comes out in june oh i've heard nothing great things about that i've literally heard people saying it looks like you're playing a movie wow so, i'm excited and those games are always super fun that franchise it's exactly it's kind of like the definition i've never of fun. actually if, bought if, one but i've played them all i may actually buy this one we'll see <laughs> Yeah, I played them back. What when was it? The PS3 that they started coming out on, and oh, two, I thought, uh, wasn't it two? It, it might like go that far back. It just, it might be. It's it's been so long now that I sure. I kind of blend like some stuff from that era, that era in. But see, I, the first one I didn't buy um, until it hit like the the PlayStation Greatest Hits uh, edition. Because, you know, they were like 20 bucks or something. And then once I played the first one, I was like, oh, my God, I got to find out how many more of these they made. And at the time, there was the first three. So played them all, loved them, and have bought a new one every time it's come out. So pretty hyped for the new one. Nice. Yeah. First Ratchet & Clank was 2002 on the PlayStation 2. Damn. Wow. That takes you back. Yeah, we're old. Why? <laughs> yeah, that's even old. That's even old for me. <laughs> yeah, damn youngsters, shut up. <laughs> I well, that's gonna wrap up with what we're watching segment. So uh, from there, uh, unfortunately, I don't really have any news items for this episode. It, there hasn't been too much. I tried to like look it up to look some yeah. stuff up. I, I mean, the, the, only, breaking... the news I was gonna bring up. Oh, the only news I was going to bring up was because I talked about Resident Evil 8, but I haven't even gotten to this part yet, so Uh-oh. I didn't really have much to say about it. was the whole thing about the monster from Frankenstein's monster kind of resembling one of the... I don't know if it was oh. a boss or just a, a thing in Resident I, Evil 8. It vaguely, vaguely looks like it. Like, yeah, I, I guess, if especially if you recently saw... Um, a Frankenstein army of Frank or Frankenstein's army, right? That's the yeah. way they were referencing. Yeah. yeah. If you recently watched Frankenstein's army and it's fresh in your head, then yes, okay, I can see that one of the characters in the movie in the game definitely will remind you of him. But it, it's still a stretch. I, it doesn't look like they ripped it off by any stretch. That's that's what the main thing I'm saying. I don't think it's it was a rip. Mostly just a propeller, right? That they're pointing huh? to to say that it's mostly just the propeller. I think that they're yeah exactly. saying that looks like it. Yeah, uh, and that part of the game right. is such a such a small minor part of the game that it it's a reach. Yeah, it's a reach. Who cares? Enjoy it. Pass. <laughs> the last uh, video game I played was Rocksmith. So the hell do I know? Good game. What, what was your instrument of choice? Bass. Oh, Bass. nice. Me too. Did you, Bass, did you uh, like have family nights with it where everyone was playing a different instrument and singing and all that? 
Um, sort of. I've only played it once, and that was with uh, some friends of ours, and they came over and brought all their stuff. Before that, before Rocksmith, the last video game I played, I think, was Parappa the Rapper. Ooh. <laughs> Punch, kick, it's all in the yeah. mind. That's it. That Dreamcast. <laughs> I think it was PS1. Was that PS1, Venom? It might have been. I it was, yeah. It's an old one. Yeah. 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 Uh, I do have a couple yeah. of minor pieces of uh, news, Mike. Um, they're not really news so much as, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what you call it. But here, since since we were talking about Spiral earlier today, um, Spiral actually broke two cinematic distinctions this week, one of them being a record, the other one uh, just being a milestone. And uh, the milestone is that um, as of this week, um, with the money that Spiral has brought in, Saw is now the latest $1 billion horror franchise. Um, as of last week, uh, the franchise literally made, uh, well, what was it, $1,007,333. So they literally hit the billion franchise. So there you go. Did they and then as far what as the other uh-huh. ones were? The other um, well, I mean, the obvious ones that have like 10 plus, like, you know, yeah. the Predator 13th. I know Nightmare's in there. Um, oh, Killjoy. <laughs> Killjoy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paranormal's in there. The entire Conjuring universe. I mean, um, Annabelle, the, Annabelle creation by itself made like half a billion. So. How about the Evil like, Bong franchise? Ooh. <laughs> that's, that's the billion rips. They hit a billion bong hits. And then uh, the last piece of information for Spiral, anyway, is that Spiral um, being now the sixth movie in the Saw franchise to debut at number one on its first week of release. Now is, now is the horror franchise with the most number one uh opening films, breaking Friday the 13th's previous franchise record of five number one films. So, yeah. Spiral, I get you can you can make an argument that Saw is now one of the most successful horror franchises out there with its sixth number one film and and passing that one billion dollars. So congratulations, Saw. Yeah, you can't really argue that point, at least. No, I mean, love it or hate it. It's got a massive presence in the community, in cinematic, you know, in filmdom history. So, yeah, I mean, I love to see it. I'm, I'm not a big money guy. I definitely don't judge my films by how much money they make or don't make. But whenever a horror franchise hits a major money milestone like that, it just makes me feel good to be a horror fan and know that, you know, we're not in a lull. We're in a golden period right now. And, uh, you know, people who constantly tout the death of horror films year after year, uh, yeah, apparently someone's going to see these movies because they're making a billion dollars. So, Nick. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, well, I don't really have... I'll go ahead with him. Uh, I say? just had one more minor thing. Again, it's not really news so much as just it's a Blu-ray release, but I'm, I'm going over it because uh, this is actually my favorite Vincent Price film. So uh, it was announced just two days ago that Kino Lorber... Uh, will be bringing the 1964 horror classic The Last Man on Earth to Blu-ray. And if anyone hasn't seen oh, that, yeah. that oh, is shit. many 
Oh, yeah, one of the many film adaptations of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. It is easily my favorite Vincent Price movie. I think his performance is absolutely stellar in that film. Uh, it's, yeah, easily my favorite adaptation of uh, I Am Legend. So, yeah, this is just one. This is a personal one that I'm excited for. So, uh, yeah, look look for it in mid-August. Yeah, um, yeah. It's mm-hmm. one of Cootie's favorite movies. It'll be awesome. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, the, it was announced with uh, two others, too. The, they're releasing The Raven on Blu-ray Ooh. and uh, The Masters of the World. Uh, that It's kind of like that Jules Verne, the blimp movie. Hmm, I didn't see with, that one. With Vince, v- Vincent Price fighting Charles Bronson. Oh, I have to see that. <laughs> you just sold me. <laughs> yeah. And that's all the little bits of news I had, Mike. And, okay. Well, the only other news that I have is one fake story because I love to do those, and one real story. I'll do the real one first, just for <laughs> continuity's sake. Uh, the the best Orson Welles film of all time is coming to 4K, which is the Transformers the movie, <laughs> which is amazing because I can't wait to watch Unicron in 4K. Hell yeah! Wow. You know, and Grimlock's my favorite. Me, Grimlock. Me so kill, <laughs> you know. But then the it fake sucks, news. I literally, I literally just bought that Blu-ray with the the Steelbook release. Uh, I forget who put it out. I think Shout Factory did, yeah. It might have been. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right, Shout Factory. So yeah, I bought that Steelbook like just a year ago, and I was so excited. And yeah, they they announced a 4K this week. It's like, god damn it, it's there not goes just, 30 more. There's actually two <laughs> versions too, Venom. So. There's the regular 4K, and they have the Steelbook 4K. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's the one I want, the Steelbook 4K. I am, I, I, I do. I know people. Some people hate Steelbooks. They think it's a unnecessary add-on. But I fucking love Steelbooks. Um, you know, being a physical film collector, anything that's going to make my films last longer, I will absolutely take it. And plus, anything that I can beat an intruder with, uh, I'm also on, you know, on board for. Some of those steel books, man, you could kill a man with. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, sure. I have two steel books. One um, is the limited edition uh, of the Beyond when that came out, and the other one was the collector's edition of Hellraiser, which came with a copy of Hellraiser Two as like a bonus for some reason. So <laughs> those are like the two steel books sitting on the movie rack on the left side that are just way huger than anything else sitting there that they always stick out to the eye like what the hell are those two things sitting there but yep they're movies yeah i got a few of them my favorite one is uh what's my favorite one there's so many good ones i really Most like my the, 4ks are now steelbooks i really like I just, the arrow i reserved the steel the book if i can get it yeah i really like the arrow driller killer one because it has that classic cover on from the vhs yeah, yeah. I really love that one. That one's fucking nice. And uh, I think the, the, the Demons ones that Synapse put out were really nice. Those ones were a little bit more expensive, but they were so worth it. Yeah, I got a few of the Shout Factories, too. The Scream Factories, you know, They Live, um, Big Trouble, uh, The Fog, stuff like that. I actually yeah. got The Fog and Pumpkinhead in Big Trouble, too, from Scream, Shout, Scream Factory. Oh, that's right, and someone got me... Pumpkinhead for Christmas this past year. Haven't even opened it yet, but yeah, I do have it. <laughs> and for the fake news story that I have, uh, Robert England just called me and told me that he is 
crossing over the two movies are about to review and making it Pinker versus Moser movie. <laughs> Place your bets. He's going to star as both in the new version. No, he'll make a cameo as Furry Cougar and he'll be the ref. Come on, let's go, guys. Whoever loses, Bob wins. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's arguable that one of them was trying to be the new Freddy to begin with, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, um, yeah, so if that wraps up our news, this is usually where we do burning question, but I didn't really see or find anything pertinent to discuss. Yeah. Mike decided uh, not to upset me this episode, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I even, yeah, I, I attempted to maybe, but I just couldn't sure. find anything worth upsetting you over. So. Well, we never know. Maybe we don't know the opinions on the films yet, Venom. That rarely upsets me. all right well with that said that's going to be where we take our hard break so stick around join us after the break for a discussion on destroyer and shocker and not the one with nicole kedman peeps the electric chair to an ordinary man it's the end but when serial killer Ivan Mosier sat down, he was just getting warmed up. So what you're telling me is that Mosier's still alive. I'm telling you Ivan Mosier is half alive. Now he's half the man and twice the animal. Unstoppable. Unbelievable. Indestructible. Maybe he's like that guy in the Halloweens who keeps getting killed so he doesn't know if he's dead or just dreaming. Everyone thought he'd just die, but no one ever dreamed he'd become Destroyer, the perfect killing machine. to the execution of Horace Pinker, whose unspeakable atrocities have horrified the people of this great state. He stands convicted of 52 counts of aggravated assault, 23 counts of armed robbery, and 37 counts of murder in the first degree. Prisoner, have any final words? Yeah. No more Mr. Nice Guy. I don't think he's dead. He's among you. Now, Wes Craven brings you his greatest creation. No more! Shocker. Okay, we are back, ready to talk about our main features for this episode. So we're going to start in chronological, uh, well, not start, but we are going to go in chronological order, starting with 1988's Destroyer, coming in at an hour and 34 minutes. A prison riot breaks out at the moment of a serial murderer's execution by electrocution. 
18 months later, a team of filmmakers converge on the prison to film a woman in prison exploitation flick. So, yes, we do get a little bit of an aspect of a movie inside movie going on here, which I think makes for an interesting story and happenings, I guess. We'll, we'll see. Uh, this stars Deborah Foreman and Susan Malone, Clayton Roner, where I mostly knew him from just one of the guys, the comedy. I, I mean, I, I looked at his IMDb. He has been in plenty of stuff, but that's what I knew him from when I saw this movie for the first time. So I thought it was, there's always something interesting when you see movies as a kid and people cross like genres and you're still kind of figuring out the film world. Like, Oh yeah, they, they don't necessarily have to be in just like comedies or horror and stuff. So I thought it just seemed like so random for him to just be in this movie after I saw him and just one of the guys. But then also Anthony Perkins, easily the biggest name in the movie. Uh, obviously we all know, wouldn't know what he's famous for. And let's see. Obviously hey, our, yeah, right. Exactly. Not, not that. that one. Okay. Uh, and then we have Lyle Alzado, uh, Alzado. as Alzado as Ivan, uh, our uh, our bad guy in this one. Motherfucker's huge in this. Like, uh, do you, Venom? Do you know what uh, was he done with football by the time this movie yes. came out? Um, yeah, Lyle Alzado retired from the Los Angeles Raiders in 1985. Yeah, because I was going to say, he looks like he might even be bigger than he was in football. Uh, kind, I mean, not really. He actually was bigger the last couple of years he played in the NFL. Because by this point, um, it's 88, so I think he had already been off steroids for like maybe two to three years by this point. Because he basically, as soon as he was done with football, he stopped with the steroids. But yeah, he fully admits, or should I say, fully admitted when he was still with us that, yeah, he pretty much used uh, steroids through all of college and professional uh, football. So, yeah, um, it, it's a cautionary tale. Uh, we'll get into, you know, Lyle Zato's eventual fate a little later on. I don't uh, want to depress yeah. everybody already. <laughs> yeah, because I looked it up. Um, he, he oh, I lived like it, my friend. I, I literally was getting daily reports from the hospital. I was like checking, um, you know, the news, the, the specific um, news source that was uh, that I could cover that could get that. I think it was the not Sports Illustrated, like Sports Weekly or something like that. Um, obviously, this was before, you know, the Internet. Um, but, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I was such a fan. I was trying to get reports daily. And when I find when we finally got the news, yeah, I, I was kind of crushed. He is uh, easily my favorite defensive uh, uh, Oakland or Los Angeles Raider ever. As much as I love Howie Long, Lyle Alzado was an absolute monster, and obviously with the steroid admission that explains it. I mean, he literally wanted to decapitate everyone on the field. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's a good starting point to open up with some general thoughts. So Venom, what did you think of Destroyer? All right. Well, this was a first time watch for me. I had heard of the film since its inception. I remember seeing the box art, you know, like at video stores and thinking this looks kind of interesting. And I just never got around to renting it. So first time watch and yeah, first time watch. I actually had a pretty good time with it. Um, Obviously the similarities to shocker are very 
evident, but at the same time, Destroyer doesn't really have much of a supernatural element. I mean, you can kind of infer one, but as far as like, um, you know, out in the open, not nearly as much as Shocker. Um, so the fact that this one was a little bit more grounded in reality, uh, you know, made me kind of enjoy it. I, 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 uh, I was down for the backstory, you know, him being executed and maybe not quite dying, starting a riot, blah, blah, blah. Like, I was I was really down for that. Obviously, there's a lot of plot holes. I mean, there is no way that a film crew would ever get a permit to work at a closed uh, prison 18 months after there was a major riot. It just way, way too soon. But again, it's cinema suspension of disbelief. Um, I wish I wish the movie had. It's weird because the movie starts out really well. I feel like the first half of this movie, including the first couple of kills, are really good. Like, they set up a really good story. Uh, but then the second half of the movie starts to get a little lackluster for me. The kills start stop being as creative as the first couple. Um, there's almost no gore or blood towards the second half of the movie. Um, you know, someone getting torched with an acetylene torch is probably the closest thing to a visceral kill we get in the movie. Um, the performances, uh, what's funny, though, is that there, this is, like Mike said, this is a movie within a movie type production. And the movie that they're filming in the movie is a women in prison movie, which by nature has a lot of bad acting, you know, bad effects, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of funny that as they're shooting their fake movie and I'm rolling my eyes at the performances, it's like, well, no, they're supposed to be performing like this because they're shooting a B movie. So, you know, that kind of little bit of irony um, was was not lost on me, though I still think that our main, um, the main actress in the production, Fox, was just awful. Sharon Fox, I think that, that was her name. Yeah, just absolutely awful but again that was her character so i have to cut her some slack for that um you know the writing is okay there's not a whole lot of effects to speak of you know like i said we get someone getting tortured getting or excuse me torched uh someone getting strangled someone else getting electrocuted a lot of off-screen deaths i mean you know, there's probably a good dozen or so people that get off in this movie, and most of them are off screen, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Lyle Alzado is pretty good as a, I mean, obviously he's a 300 pound monster, so if you put him in as an antagonist in any film, it's probably going to work. Um, he definitely has to work on his maniacal laugh, though. Um, <laughs> in the third act, his maniacal laugh was just, I was laughing at his laugh. Because it was so silly and repetitive too, it, it almost felt like a loop. The way that it was, the way that it sounded, it didn't sound like it was him genuinely, um, you know, laughing like a psycho. So you know, the, the, obviously, um, you know, Lyle didn't really star in too many films, so um, you know, his acting chops aren't exactly up to par. But they work for this film, and they work as in the antagonist role, and then. You know, obviously, as the movie goes along, we, we end up getting a secondary antagonist, which I don't know how spoilery we're going to get with this. So I'll leave that one alone. I That reveal was kind of cool. I mean, it's definitely out of left field, the reveal of uh, the relationship between Ivan Moser and Russell, the uh, guard at the prison. But um, overall, I had a really good time with this movie. Um, I think that Shocker is maybe a little bit more fun as far as its fun factor. I think that one, you know, it's a little bit more enjoyable, something that I'll probably watch more often. 
But I, this was a surprise to me. I was expecting complete schlock. And even though mostly they they came through with that promise, I was actually surprised, um, you know, to see some decent performances. It was cool to see um, our two stars from April Fool's Day get reunited here. Um, Deborah Foreman and Clayton Rohner, um, uh, both from April Fool's Day. And, of course, Deborah Foreman from one of my favorite movies, Waxworks. So um, and she's you know, she's always adorable in her films. So she's always, uh, um, you know, fun to watch in her films. You know, she always plays kind of the lily white, you know, virginal type girl, not virgin, literally, but virginal. Um, so, yeah, overall, I had a pretty fun time with this. I'm not sure how often I would return to it. I, uh, you know, I can't really say that it is, quote unquote, a good good or great film but it's enjoyable i had fun with it and if you're a raiders fan you got to check it out just for lyle alzado's over-the-top performance yeah cool uh all right derek uh thoughts on destroyer this is also a first time watch for me yeah uh it it's it's a movie (laughs) you know uh i actually like the concept of you know a uh, movie being filmed inside of an old prison. I do agree that 18 months is kind of like, yeah, but you know, it's a movie. I'll let it slide. But you know, I'm thinking in the back of my head, I kind of agree with Venom on that. It's like, why would any like parole board or like whoever they got permission? I think the warden was actually one of the dudes they got permission from yep. the film there. So like, that seems a little too far into the, close to the not even close to the future but close to fucking do that but it's whatever it's a movie get the story going which yeah this movie does move so i'll give it that much but you know i like that story i like it you know i actually like anthony perkins as this sleazy director you know he's like (laughs) you're gonna win an oscar susan come on or sharon you know, he actually electrocates Sharon Fox. I, I died laughing at that. You know, oh, he's my just God. Good. That had some William Friedkin elements to it. The way that he, uh, William Friedkin purposely hurt Ellen Burstyn in The Exorcist. I'm like, oh, shit. Here we go again. Yeah, you know, he had some inspiration from certain directors. Maybe somebody he has worked with in the past. So I give it to Perkin. He, he's one of my favorite parts of the movie. I wish he was in it a little bit more, but it's good to see him. In this type of role, because he he was a director himself, and really, I think he directed Psycho two, like no three, like three. two yep. years, two years before this. So he had that director's chair, you know, uh, thing going on with him. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I I dig this movie for what it is. Is it the greatest movie ever made? No, but is it a good time waster if you're looking for something to watch? I say yeah. I I I check out Destroyer. It's, it's, I agree. It's a little bit more ground in reality. And I like the prison setting, which, you know, you have a few movies that kind of have the similar beat, not just shocker and destroyer. You had like prison and, uh, the horror show that came out all around the same time. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, 88 and 89 were big years for, uh, uh, coming back from an electrocution movies. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, you do like a top four and rank them, and uh, I'm glad I saw this one. I I dug it. I dug it for what it was. I do kind of agree that the first half was better than the second half, too. 
Because mm-hmm. I feel I feel like maybe it's because it was such a long like chase between him and the girl, where most of the second half of the movie is just him fucking trying to stalk Susan through these corridors, and it gets kind of repetitive in a way. Because you know, once he, she he gets down, then she runs again, then catches her, then he gets away again, chases her, and you know, it, it gets kind of repetitive in those later scenes. But mm-hmm. overall, you know, I didn't mind it. You know, I would watch this again on a rainy day if there was nothing else on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, like I said, I'm not going to return to it too often. Um, but it's still fun. I like it. All right. Uh, X, thoughts on Destroyer? I think I liked it more than Mr. Venom or Derek did, actually. I'd never seen it before, didn't know it existed. The only thing I'd really seen Al Zeta in prior to this was Caveman, which I love. <laughs> That's just glorious slapstick. Um, but I wasn't expecting a lot from this movie, and I didn't think I was going to enjoy it as much as I did. And it worked for me for uh, four reasons, really. It doesn't try to be funny. And I really appreciated that. You talked about it being more grounded in reality. I mean, there's some there's some comedic parts with the women in prison film shooting, and they actually have a tech guy character named Rewire, which is fucking hilarious <laughs> to me. Um, but I think for the largest part, Destroyer takes itself the right amount of seriousness. That's not a word, and that's bad sentence structure. It doesn't overreach. And it doesn't try to hamstring itself with you know scenes that are supposed to be so hilarious that they totally stop the momentum that the film has going for it. And the you were talking about the the swerve where um, Harris and Mosier are revealed to be related. Didn't see that shit coming at all. So that really that really surprised me, and I dug it. I like like both of you guys. I like the uh, scenes in the prison which I think really goes against a lot of the films that came out of the 80s, which were really bright and really well lit. So I don't think that this is supposed to be a great-looking movie. It's full of shadows and, you know, pits and elevator shafts and stuff like that. It's stylized as hell, but I think for a bottle movie, this is grungy enough to just kind of it lets the viewer buy into that that story and that environment. And I like that as far as the casting goes, I don't think I've ever, well, I don't remember ever thinking to myself, Oh, Holy shit. Clayton Rohner is really good in this movie. <laughs> the, the, the first time when I saw Clayton Rohner's name come up on the screen, I thought, Oh, that's the dude from legend of the lone ranger, but that's Clinton Spillsbury. And I was completely wrong about that. Um, Deborah Foreman is dependable she's always good uh anthony perkins was great but the main thing that got me about the people in the film is when pat mahoney walked on screen as warden karsh did anybody else think he looked a lot like jim ross kind of a little yeah yeah because <laughs> i was like why the hell is good old jr in this movie he's gonna yell slobber knocker <laughs> they just want to yell boomer sooner at the screen. <laughs> it was a slobber knocker. <laughs> it's hilarious because there's actually a storyline where fucking Jim Ross got caught on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best reason to watch this, though, is, is Al Zeno. He is the human epitome of googly eyes in this movie. He's just... 
just he's just a tremor, you know, his eyes bulge out. I think his hair is moving all the time. He's just quivering and he spits when he talks and he just looks like he's out of control and out of his mind. He's fucking great in this movie. So yeah, I liked it a lot more than I think you two guys did. I could be wrong, but I think it's it's Destroyer's very lean, almost sinewy. And that's awesome. I would happily watch this again and probably introduce other people to it. Yeah, you know, I actually really did enjoy it. I just usually, the thing is, I usually let people know that maybe, like, who haven't seen it, there might be some issues or, like, effects or something like that when I do the dude gets killed with a jackhammer. That's pretty gnarly. You see that shit? (laughs) It's true. That is true. I do dig this movie a lot. And, you know, I, I would watch this again. I even said that when I was talking about it. It's not that I hated the movie. I'm just like, I critique fucking movies. I give 10 out of 10 too, like Halloween guy drive <laughs> longest alarm going off before the police get there ever in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> the eight yeah. hour alarm, <laughs> you know, but you know, yeah, I dig it. I dig the destroyer. It's good shit. Yeah, I would Man, probably I, pick I, up a blue of this. Just uh, for my sheer love of Lyle Alzado, I'd probably pick up a blue of this movie. Yeah, I really love Anthony Perkins' performance in this. I wasn't expecting much going into it because this was also a first-time watch. Not not that I don't expect much of Anthony Perkins in general, but I just thought, you know, kind of a more obscure title, something he was just doing to do and I was like, what's he going to be like in this? But I, I actually was cracking up at you know his abuse of everyone on the film set and he almost had like a vince mcmahon like quality to him like you know the ringleader of the circus in the prison the wrestling reference out of nowhere like like when he yeah which was funny because when x brought up the good old jr i was like well that's funny because i'm about to say vince i'm about to drop vince mcmahon too but just like the whole thing when when he's like yeah explain the process of things and how they make movies and it's just like that's vince mcmahon right there that that's exactly what i think of like when i would think of mcmahon directing things behind the scenes on how things are going to play out and work and um yeah wow we we make movies that's that's what we do and uh yeah i could totally imagine like that yeah i i guess the whole like the whole gimmick with the women in prison thing so they had to do like the the uh, required gratuitous nudity scene that comes out of nowhere. <laughs> I think. It was silly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it was pretty. It was pretty silly. It's like, what exactly is going on here besides a justification for lots of nudity in one scene? But hey, it it, it works, I guess. Um, and I love. You know, what's funny you know, is that they they set up that scene for a lot of nudity, but then they fill the scene with smoke. You're you're blocking half the nudity with your stupid smoke. What the what the hell's the point? Yeah, it's like watching Conquest. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I um I like Lyle in this too. I thought he played a good uh, villain. I uh, he he's he's one of those guys that, regardless of what you think about his actual acting ability, he he has the look for like this type of role. He just has sure. that natural menacing. Yeah. and of course, a, as his reputation as a NFL player, let alone a defensive lineman, he probably comes into it on, in a role like this with just a built-in rep of being like a badass to begin with. So yeah. it, it's kind of like a natural fit, you know. 
movie villains in these types of movies don't necessarily have to have the greatest acting ability. If you can just come off menacing and pull that aspect of it well, then it's going to be a success. And I think in this movie, it does it does work really well. So yeah, kudos yeah. to him. Yeah, it didn't yeah, exactly. Oh, good. I was just going to say the late eighties is like the heyday for athletes trying acting. You know, we had the Brian Bosworth movies, you know, we had, uh, Oh God, why are they slipping? Uh, I know that there was a couple others, but yeah, like late eighties, early nineties, man. And most of them failed miserably. Um, Lyle Alzado's performance here is one note, but the thing is he does that one note really well. So it works. <laughs> No, no, I wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, it was fucking hilarious that Lyle Zato was wearing that tight fucking cop outfit for most of the movie. You What's know. funny is that when he first shows up with that costume on, they don't show the back of it. So I didn't realize that it was all torn up, that he that he made it fit. <laughs> the first time they show it, it's from the front. And I'm like, how the fuck did that little skinny cop's clothes fit on Lyle Alzado? But then they answered my question as soon as I asked it. Now, now I want to ask you guys a question. If Perkins is Vince McMahon and the warden is Jim Ross, does that make Ivan Moser Chris Benoit? Ooh, I'd go more with the Ultimate Ooh. Warrior. Yeah, the Ultimate. I I always heard the Ultimate Warrior was uh, difficult to work with. That's so true. It kind of comes off like Alzado because he was also difficult to work with. Like off the field, Lyle Alzado was an absolute angel, a teddy bear. He did so much charity work. It was ridiculous, especially with youth groups. But on the field, I mean, his teammates literally all said he was a completely different person. The steroids fucked up his brain so much that on the field, he was literally trying to kill. So, yeah, he was definitely a Jekyll and Hyde type. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> all this wrestling else? talk makes me want to go watch an old WrestleMania. Exactly. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, I remember renting old wrestling videos at the video store when we would have like birthday parties and stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Well, what else do we got to say about Destroyer? Anything before we uh, um, move on? I would have liked to have seen the original actor who was supposed to play the director uh, play it. Do you, Do you guys know who the original choice mm-hmm. for the director? No, who was it? It was Roddy McDowell. And Roddy Roddy McDowell actually agreed to take this role. Like, he was signed on to do it. And then literally weeks before production was set to begin, he had to back out. So Anthony Hopkins was actually, like, a lucky uh, stroke for them because he literally had to take it on, like, a few weeks' notice. And at first he said no, but apparently someone on the production talked him into it. But I don't know, something about Roddy McDowell's um, very kind of wry sense of humor. I, I, I think he would have been a little bit more over the top. Because, you know, Anthony Perkins, we definitely don't see him as a sleazy director type. It was kind of hard for me to buy it. Um, nothing against Anthony Hop- uh, Perkins. Uh, yeah, Perkins. I said Hopkins before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, even, I didn't Magic- even take it that way. I took it, you know, because he's wearing that, that fine suit inside the That's- prison. I, I, I kind of took it as he's a director who's kind of fallen from grace and now is directing women in prison movies, but he still has that attitude of, I used to be in Hollywood. Yeah. Yes. I'll go with that. Absolutely. He definitely portrays that. 
I mean, he is the best dressed person in the movie, easily. So yeah, it does make sense. Except for maybe Rewire. Did anybody recognize Rewire? Am I the only early MTV viewer here? <laughs> he looks familiar. Uh, that actor also played Randy of the Redwoods, who was a character from MTV commercials and promo spots. Really? Oh, I remember that. That's Randy of the Redwoods. That's hilarious. Because <laughs> I knew I recognized him. Instantly, I was like, at first I thought it was the dude from, like, Tango and Cash, um, the, the weapons expert from Tango and Cash, but they yeah. don't have the same voice. Um, so I had to look him up. But, yeah, that's where I recognized him, Randy of the fucking Redwoods. And I'm sure anybody under 30 has no fucking idea what we're talking about. But yeah, in the late eighties and early nineties, MTV had a series of commercial spots called camp MTV where, you know, basically they were trying to get kids to stay inside and watch MTV during the summer instead of going out and having fun. (laughs) And Randy of the Redwoods was the spokesperson for that campaign. And he was like this hippie type. He wore really colorful clothes. He wore a bandana. I mean, he really was. It was basically a take on Rewire. It, I, I can see how Rewire, the character Rewire, kind of morphed into um, Randy of the Redwoods because Rewire had that kind of stoner, slacker mentality to him. And that's kind of how Randy of the Redwoods came off. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I did like how they made Susan a stunt d- double in this movie. Yes, I actually loved that. Like, I was convinced, and, and again, the misogynist in me instantly was like, oh, she must be doing hair and makeup, or she's an actress, or something like that. But then when she went to set up for that stunt, it was like, ah, oh, she's a stunt person. That makes me, like, really like her. Like, I like her so much more after I found out she was a stunt person. <laughs> Yeah, it builds more into the ending, too, where she's like, she actually has to climb and jump off shit. Because she actually does that shit for a living, so she can take a beating sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah they did set that, uh, they set that up nicely, too, because during, during the movie, they made the joke about, you know, are you sure you can hit the target? And the target was gigantic. It was this big, square, inflatable whatever. But then in at the end of the movie, her target was much smaller. It was a fucking laundry basket, and she nailed it. So kudos for her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I liked how they paid that off. Yep. So, yep. Okay. All right, Mike. Let's get to the real juicy subject matter. Yes, <laughs> Lex. Uh, all right. Well, uh... We will move on then to our final feature of the episode, 1989's Nightmare on Electric Chair Street, a.k.a. Shocker. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. It's Electrocution on Elm Street. Yeah, Electrocution on Elm Street. (laughs) After being sent to the electric chair, a serial killer uses electricity to come back from the dead and carry out his vengeance on the football player who turned him in to the police starring, uh, is it Mitch Pelleggi or Pelleggi, um, as yeah, Horace Pinker, detective Skinner, yeah. the smoking yep. man or not, not the smoking man. You're right. Detective Skinner. I got them reversed. <laughs> yeah. From X files. Mm-hmm. Peter Berg is in this that people should probably recognize. Return. John Tesh. <laughs> No, no more room than alumni. Michael Murphy from Dead Kids <laughs> playing the same camp in the movie. I've never heard of her. <laughs> yeah, Victor. Heather Langenkamp. 
Yeah. yeah, her character name is Victim. Future future <laughs> filmmaker Peter Berg, director of Battleship, is Jonathan Parker. Even Ted Raimi gets in on the fun of being killed as Pac-Man. Uh, Theodore Raimi. No, Theo, right. Theo, Theo Raimi. Theodore. <laughs> so good. Like he's a fucking chickmunk. Yeah, yeah, like he was going for an Oscar. I'm not Ted Raimi, I'm Theodore. I'm Theodore yeah, Raimi yeah. this movie. <laughs> but even Mike Murphy, so we... I mean, Mike Murphy's someone who a lot of people maybe don't know by name, but when you see his face, you're like, hey, that guy. Yeah, he's the guy who plays the da- dad who, pick, who fathers an adopted son in every movie that we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is true, isn't it? Wow. Dead no, kids. Dead kids. Yeah, you're right. Like he's, the, he's the quintessential stepdad. Or foster <laughs> yeah. dad, depending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so before we get into general thoughts i think for a movie like this it's kind of interesting you know it came out in 1989 so this was i believe after all the nightmare on Elm streets besides part six Wes craven had kind of left the franchise for the most part until returning later with new nightmare mm-hmm. and i was reading up that he actually was making this one with the intention of turning it into a new franchise. Now there's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's very, um, Nightmare on Elm Street esque, uh, filming techniques in this one, or at least, you know, lifting stuff out of his own material. The opening itself, when Horace Pinkert's kind of putting together all his electronic device stuff, uh, is right out of the original Nightmare on when we open with Kruger making his glove, um, of course, you know, this one is not as like raw style of, of filming, but same general concept. Um, kind of the, even, you know, it's funny because the, the way he becomes supernatural is kind of reminiscent of the Freddy Krueger lore, even though, the whole, for those who have seen Freddy's Dead, the actual dream demon things that comes after this movie. But it is it reminded me when my when the little spirit comes out of the TV, he's like, "You want it? You got it." Uh. Even the voice of that sounded some of the damn dream demons. I think this movie, I tend to like this movie, but it has flaws, and it it feels like. It feels like it wants to be serious, then it wants to be goofy, then it it, it wants to teeter on both, and I think that's, to me, the major flaw in it, is it, it almost can't decide if it wants to be, like, the more serious style of Nightmare on Elm Street, or once the franchise became, you know, more Freddy Krueger one-liners and comedic value to it. It's almost like Wes Craven approached it not realize or not knowing for himself like if i was to start a new franchise how exactly do i want the tone to be because i think this one tries to have it both ways which hurts it i think horace pinker as a villain i i like him i mean i i i'm probably unintentionally laughing at his performance just because it's so over the top what a scumbag he is and once he starts jumping bodies and you know you have the other people trying to act like him is, oh. is pretty funny. Um, but yeah, uh, I'll go ahead and open it up. Not general thoughts. So X, I'll start with you on this one. <laughs> I'll put myself on mute for this. <laughs> <laughs> Picked this one, did you, Mike? 
Why do you hate me? Well, I ask you that. No, you're no longer on theme wires, so I had to do something to uh, <laughs> give you, make you feel at home again. All right. <clears throat> Look, I'm not a big Craven fan. Okay, he's really super hit or miss for me, and I think he's made some good flicks. But overall, his filmography kind of leaves me frustrated and bored. Shocker is not a good movie. It's nowhere near being a good movie. It feels like whatever notes were given to him about the script, he completely disregarded. Like, nope, the studio's <laughs> wrong about the ghost of the main character's dead girlfriend shooting a beam of pure love and light out of her chest like a goddamn <laughs> albino care bear. I think that's great, and I'm fucking keeping it. <laughs> I'm amazed that the script got past anybody with a lick of sense at Universal. And really, I think it's the dead girlfriend character that really makes Shocker as weak as it is. She seems to represent that ultimate force of good that helps our bland football player hero fight off the unstoppable evil force. That's Horace Pinker. But her presence not only prevents the hero from really getting creative in his attempts to stop Pinker, she's actually kind of a hindrance. Like, okay, um... Parker gives her like this heart necklace for her birthday or something, and it's cute. And then she's all, I love you so much, Jonathan Parker. And then five seconds later, she gets mangled by Pinker. But it doesn't matter because she comes back as this dream ghost thing and somehow gives him the necklace back. And that necklace becomes this talisman against Pinker, who apparently can't stand in the presence of fucking love. So Pinker's doing his fucking body hop shtick in a public park, and he takes over the body of this construction worker, who in real life was Kane Roberts, who played guitar for Alice Cooper. But this dude manages to hook the necklace on the end of his pickaxe, and he hurls the whole thing into a lake, okay? Now, Parker wants to go back to get it, but his diving mask is back at his house, and he insists nobody can find that necklace without his diving mask, which is back at his house. Somehow he talks his football coach into going to get the necklace for him, but I kept thinking, why that mask? Are they not near, like, I don't know, a fucking store? Like, a place that might potentially sell diving masks? It's a really weird plot hole. It's a fucking crater. And I also got really disproportionately pissed off. <laughs> When the, when the dream girlfriend appeared to Jonathan Parker and said, listen, I have something very important to tell you. Listen very closely. Fucking say it. I mean, you're dead. Do you have time restraints? No, you're fucking dead. No reason for you to be really? keeping secrets. What is Pinker supposed to be? Is he a fierce killer? Is he Brad Dourif from Child's Play doing on-the-fly voodoo so he can become electricity? And then he becomes... What, TV signals? So, so okay, so we've got not Freddy Krueger plugging himself in the wall outlets and roaming through television programs. Why is every TV in this movie tuned to the fucking Disaster Channel? <laughs> it's all war scenes and nuclear bomb explosions and Vietnam airstrikes. It's like all the worst parts of the Discovery Channel smashed together with a Megadeth video, and it's on every single fucking TV in the movie. Like nobody's watching America's Funniest Home Videos or I don't know Lassie, some shit. 
I like Mitch Pelleggi as Pinker. He's he's great, and I like Richard Brooks as as Rhino. Even though the <laughs> he just does not completely trust that he and Jonathan Parker are friends. He's like, we're friends, right? Are we friends? Are you my friend? Even though I'm a black man and you're extremely Caucasian, have we even met? Every other performance is like watching sheets of drywall pretend to be human and stagger around mumbling dialogue. Now, I don't know. I know this movie was like cut really extensively to avoid the X rating, but as far as I know, those were all cuts of, of violent scenes. I'm pretty sure that they didn't get notes back from the MPAA saying, golly, Wes, this movie just makes too much sense. Could you cut out all the parts that make it clear what's going on and maybe just streamline it a little bit? And could you add more bits of exposition that are just fucking news reports you hear in the background? Could we get more John Tash? <laughs> the little montage in that third act for Parker and Parker, Pinker and Pinker and Parker sounds like a fucking seventies detective show. So they're running through like different historical video portions, and that's cool. But it doesn't even come close to making up through all the bullshit we had to go through to get there. Um, I hate this fucking movie, and I hate it a lot. And I would much rather watch Destroyer, which does a lot better on a lower budget with way more heart. All right. That's what we've been missing from the podcasting world, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, let's Got see. Me riled. Got me <laughs> uh, Derek, we'll go with you next. Thoughts on Shocker? I fucking hate this fucking movie. Now, this is a funny story because I thought I'd seen this whole movie before. I only seen the last 15 minutes of this movie. And I just realized that on this watch, because what happened was I used to, this is a funny story, when I was on 22 Shots, I used to agree with moods all the time. This movie's not that bad to JP, and JP's like, it's fucking terrible. And JP, if you listen to this, you were fucking right, man. This movie doesn't know what the fuck it wants to be. First minute, it's like a nightmare in Elm Street. Then it turns into like a... It turns into the Fallen with Denzel Washington, where the you know he just hops bodies and shit, and it's so fucking ridiculous that every body he hops has to have that fucking limp leg. I'm like, why? You're in a new body. It doesn't make sense. You should not have a limp leg if you're in a new body. Thank you. Yes, I have that in my notes. <laughs> you know, it's like fucking retarded and. I do agree that Mitch Pelagia is probably the best part of the movie. I actually like his performance as Horace Pinker, but, you know, sometimes he goes way over the top, and it's just the way that the tone of the movie is, because sometimes it's serious, and sometimes it's fucking mega-deaf Alice Cooper music video. And the soundtrack is actually probably the best part of the movie for me. But yeah, Yeah, you know, but overall, this movie's a fucking mess. It's fucking awful you know peter berg i usually like in a few movies i've seen him in, and i he is trying to act but he has nothing to work with because his character is just dull because he's getting side you know by this ghost girl <laughs> i died laughing when you said it was like a kid <laughs> albino care bear yeah <laughs> it's because it's true now that i look at it it is <laughs> That needs you know, to be a t-shirt, like, right now. Yeah, we gotta make that, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, this movie's a mess. It, 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 you know, when you say it was cut down, 
It should have been cut down because it's way too fucking long. This movie feels drawn out at times. I either really legitly watch this in two sittings. Because, like, I didn't even know, like, there was a, you know, it begins as a police procedural, then it begins. Because I thought he died in the beginning of the movie. I did not know there was, like, this whole backstory thing where, you know, he's a killer and he killed the, this guy's parents and kid and shit and, like, his girlfriend. I'm like, when he's still alive, that would have been more interesting if he was dead doing that shit. Mm-hmm. I'm like, fuck this movie. Fuck it up its ass. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, Venom. Um, okay. Is this, did this movie give you the shocker as well? Uh, oh, God. Wait, can you give a guy the shocker? Anyway. Um, I saw this movie in theaters, and I was a young idiot in the late 80s, so I remember actually mildly enjoying the movie. Now, I have not watched it since then, literally. I've never returned to it. And wow, I think I realize why. Yeah, this movie's not great. I mean, the movie starts out with a football scene, and I hate football scenes. I I don't know why. It's something that has always bothered me, a a non-sports movie having a random football scene in it. And it's specifically football. I, you know, if it's a random baseball scene, I don't seem to have as much of a problem with it. But with the football scenes, it's just it's so contrived and stupid. And of course, he makes a, a stupid mistake, and then on the very next play, he scores a touchdown. It's just so formulaic and dumb that I, I just can't get by. Uh, you know, these football scenes. Um, we got you know a lot of off-screen deaths, not a lot of actual, if any, actual like gore or anything, um, visceral death, nothing like that. Um, I was shocked, at, <laughs> no pun intended. I was very shocked that like the football coach and the members of the football team all believed this insane story that this kid was telling us. That, you know, I, I saw a serial killer get electrocuted, but I'm pretty sure he's still alive and travel and jumping from person to person. It's like, what the fuck? Are you electricity or are you a spirit or are you a broadcast signal? Because that's the other thing, guys. The movie changes its rules as it goes. I mean, electricity and broadcast signals do not travel over the same frequency. So, again, I'm getting way too logical for a movie like this. This is definitely something you're not supposed to think this deeply about. But It's genre fluid. (laughs) (laughs) Great way to put it. Absolutely. Um, yes, uh, the girlfriend turning into a force ghost from Star Wars, uh, just absolutely laughable. She does it with none of the charm of Yoda, unfortunately, just, yeah, it's, it, it makes so little sense. It comes out of nowhere. These two are not married. They, I guess they're living together for a little bit of time, but it's not like they should have some kind of cosmic connection that transcends death it just doesn't make sense that you know she's able to interact with physical objects too i mean they they just they explain so little about the film you know they they expect the viewer to fill in the blanks which like i said if you shut off your brain and you don't think about the movie while you're watching it you might enjoy it if you use your brain in any way shape or form during this hour and 50 minutes you're probably not going to enjoy the movie um what else did I have issues with? 
Um, the plan, the, the plan that Parker comes up with at the end is one of the most <laughs> convoluted, ridiculous things I've ever heard. I'm sitting here like, even if this plan works, it is a ridiculous, stupid plan that no human should have ever thought of. It just doesn't make any sense that this kid has all this trust in being able to travel from, you know, over the same broadcast signal that Horace Pinker did. It just doesn't make any sense. But why is he able to? Of course, the power of love, which it's just, that's a statement that should never, ever be in a horror film, ever. I don't want to, I don't care about the power of love in a horror film. I want to see the power of the axe, the power of the knife, the power of the gun. That's what I'm interested in in a horror film. Fuck the power of love. Uh, so that whole thing with the girlfriend just uh, it's just too convenient a plot point. Um, you know, like 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 Mr. Martin said, makes no sense that this um, medallion, this necklace has any kind of power over Horace Pinker. It's not like it's not like Horace has any kind of um, history with this necklace. I mean, he's never seen it before in his life. Why she, this thing has any kind of power over him? Absolutely beyond me. And she owned it for like what half an hour. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, what else? What else? Oh, and actually, my favorite part of this film is actually Timothy Leary as a TV evangelist. I thought that was incredibly entertaining. Yeah, I've met Timothy Leary. I met him in the early '90s, maybe what three or four years before his death. And and he's a great guy. I mean, you know, very open about everything he's done, everything he believes in, blah blah blah. He was he was kind of a fun guy to hang around for fi- for the five minutes that I got to. Um, so yeah, seeing him as a TV evangelist, which is pretty much the antithesis of Timothy Leary, um, was very entertaining for me. And especially once Horace and Jonathan became part of the show that uh, Leary was on. Um, yeah, I, I found that mildly enjoyable. So I guess I can, I guess I can honestly say I didn't regret my entire time with the film. Um, I thought the chair gag was actually mildly, it was silly, but it definitely came out of nowhere. I I would never imagine a chair coming to life. And once again, another rule that doesn't make sense. How is Horace Pinker transforming into a goddamn chair? How much electricity is involved in a chair? You know, know that was going to (laughs) happen. When that happened, for, did you ever see Spy Hard? I thought it was going to turn into the fucking Charles Jernan from Spy Hard when he disguised Yeah, it. that I could go with. <laughs> Actually transforming into a chair, though, that was that was a definite reach. Um, yeah, he was turning it, into Cherry it, from Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> yeah, but with none that's of what it looked out. like. But, but that's sort of the point. Yeah, I feel like Wes Kirby, he, it's like he's throwing so much out there in in this where it, it it almost is like overwhelmingly convincing that he wants this to become more than a one-off i i believe that i think it was because of just um lack of box office success it was like no we're, there's not going to be any more i know um one of the black i don't know everything that got cut integrity yeah i know i know one of the things that were cut to get an r rating was the scene where he bites off the fingers of one of the prison guards guys i guess there was a scene where he actually spit the fingers out um so you know it's okay to see the fingers laying there fingers looking good yeah (laughs) we could see the severed fingers laying next to him 
afterwards, but if he would have spit him out of his mouth, that's just too much, even though it's no secret how the fingers got severed. So kind of a weird thing, but hey, 80s, you know, what are you going to do? But I, yeah, I, I think this movie, it's already like high concept to begin with, but it's it, 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 it ends up as a mess, especially, it's just, it gets really goofy, that last part of the, or probably just the entire third act, uh, yeah. any discipline with your concepts and uh, everything else, it just flies out the window. And I think, may, you know, maybe Craven thought, you know, we're so late into the slasher craze now that I just got to be like big and over the top. And he, he wasn't able to rein himself in and no one else uh, involved in the movie was able to rein him in either. Maybe. Yeah, he he really should have stuck more with the formula that he had on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Make the first one a legitimately scary film. You know, no intentional comedy. Uh, Establish the character as a badass villain first. And then with subsequent sequels, then start, like, introducing the fact that he could travel over broadcast signal or that he can transform into fucking furniture. You know what I mean? He threw too much into this film for anybody to really kind of get into Horace Pinker. Um, You made a point that Horace Pinker felt more or somebody made a point that Horace Pinker felt more interesting before his execution, like when he was still just a regular plain old serial killer. Um, I totally agree. I I thought that part of the movie was way more interesting. The actual chase of Horace Pinker. I agree mm-hmm. with that, and I'd actually forgotten that we actually get a decent amount of movie before he actually becomes uh, exactly. undead or whatever the hell you would consider. He becomes Azazel from I, Fallen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually enjoyed like the non-dead version of him in the movie where it was just a criminal, and it was it almost felt like you got like the the backstory nature that you didn't get with Freddy Krueger. And I wonder why, or not, not wonder why I wonder if maybe that's why, uh, Wes Craven chose to craft it or write it that way to where we got a good chunk of him just as the, the, uh, felon and to where Freddy, you know, when it starts, he's already Freddy Krueger and all those years of a rumored like prequel. I wonder if like, this was his way of like, okay, well I'll put that element in here, I mean, who knows? Honestly, I, would, um, I wouldn't mind. Ultimately, this was, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say I wouldn't mind this if because it feels like it's three movies in one. This movie, I would want. I would actually give these a chance if they were all three of these movies. Yes, if this was a trilogy ending with a very over the top third part, I might like this a little bit more. Like I said, may, make. The first chapter, you know, the majority of him pre-execution, you know, set him up as the complete degenerate psycho that he is. Get us to hate the character or for some people love the character um, first, then start throwing the really crazy over the top shit like you did with Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, as, yeah. you know, I mean, even though Freddy is basically a dream demon, which is very fictional as it is, the first one was very grounded. Freddy wasn't purposely trying to be funny. He was going for scares, and I think it was effective. And then with the subsequent sequels, then get more fun, start going more over the top, and establishing Horace as actually maybe being mildly funny, whatever the case may be, but... Yeah, it's almost like he took an entire trilogy and stuck it in one movie, like Derek said. I hadn't actually thought about that as I'm watching it, but with Derek mentioning it, it makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Though I will say there is one part of the story um, that I do kind of enjoy. Um, uh, again, it's kind of an over-the-top element to it, but for whatever it's worth, I like the fact that they established Horace Pinker as a voodoo practitioner before his execution. Because with Destroyer, there's no rhyme or reason. Basically, we're made to believe that uh, Moser was just so strong and you know so crazy that he survived the execution. Whereas with this one, at least they set it up, almost like in Chucky, where they set up that Brad Dorff is a, or that, excuse me, Charles Lee Ray is a, uh, you know, voodoo practitioner, that he practices this stuff and he believes in it. So for whatever it's worth, at least it made sense that Horace Pinker survived his execution. Um, so, you know, I'm just giving the movie props for that, for the one story element that I kind of like. <laughs> Holy shit, I just realized... He took from Serpent and the Rainbow his own movie the year before. Motherfucker. With the voodoo. Oh, the voodoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He did Serpent and the Rainbow the year before this. See, there you go. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's lots of Uh, of elements from, like, his former movies in this. And I'm just thinking, like, maybe he was like, we're so late in the stage of these style of movies that, I maybe he thought he couldn't afford to like start small and build because I I agree with your idea Venom that it, if he was truly trying to make this a franchise I I feel like he he totally forgot his own lesson in Nightmare on Elm Street was the first one you start small you uh, make the villain less seen less heard of through the entire running time at least directly. And then you kind of build that up as more entries come. Maybe they expand their abilities and supernatural powers. But it's like he threw it all out there in the first one, and it it seemed like overkill. Yeah, very few horror icons become icons after one appearance. You know, it's not like Freddy Krueger was on everyone's lips in 1984. Yes, he made a big splash amongst the horror community, but, you know, he wasn't a household name until, you know, part three, part four, blah, blah, blah. Same thing with Jason. Same thing with Michael. It seemed like Wes was, yeah, basically trying to save time. He just didn't have the time to set up Horace Pinker as this, you know, very menacing uh, horror icon type villain. And, yeah, he just did way too much in this film. What's funny is that this is a film that I think could do with a remake. But, um, again, it needs to be more grounded. It needs to go take its time. I mean, because the the pacing is mildly frantic in this one. It's not completely over the top, but it's a fast-paced movie. I mean, the first act is probably the slowest in the movie, and that's where we're getting the most actual horror action, you know, with Horace Pinker stalking families and whatnot. Once Horace Pinker is dead, it turns more into like a sci-fi action movie at that point. Like the horror is kind of abandoned and they're just going more for thrills than actual, you know, tension and tone. So yeah, yeah, Wes definitely did himself a little disservice with this one, but you know, for whatever it's worth, I mean, I don't even think it's Wes Craven's worst movie. It's definitely not anything that I'm see myself returning to but for whatever it's worth when i do end up sitting down and watch it i end up laughing at it enough that i enjoy my time with it you know i'm not brooding about how bad it is i'm not getting frustrated and cringing at line deliveries and everything else i I look at this movie as a comedy and as long as i look at it as a comedy i can enjoy it (laughs) because it ain't a horror movie 
Okay. Let me jump back to one thing. I think in Destroyer, uh, Mosier survived his execution because of his intense love of televised game shows. But <laughs> in Shocker, I realized that Pinker was practicing voodoo, but I can't figure out who would give a death row inmate candles and a source of flame? <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> television, everything. <laughs> Holy shit. Ah, good times. <laughs> great score, though. I mean, I'll yeah, I was going to say, the soundtrack is pretty score. damn good. I'm not a big fan of Megadeth's cover of No More Mr. Nice Guy. I know it's probably one of the bigger songs off of this uh, soundtrack, and that's fine. But so I, I'm a big fan of Alice it? Cooper, uh, of 70s Alice Cooper, 70s and early 80s Alice Cooper. I love all of that stuff. Well before Alice Cooper kind of turned into a glam rocker um, when he was still doing shock rock. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. Dave Mustaine's voice just doesn't cut it for me on that song. I do like Megadeth in general, um, but I just always remember, even when this song was new, when it came out in 89 and the video was playing on Headbangers Ball, I just remember thinking, eh, it's okay. I prefer yeah, the original. Their best but the cover. rest of the soundtrack's great. Yeah, I, I really enjoy a lot of the music on here. Yeah, I, I, I agree with X. I think he said it really quick in there that, the, the biggest problem for me with Megadeth's cover is it just feels like restrained for a band like Megadeth. Like they didn't do yeah. anything to really yeah. put Megadeth's fingerprints on it, which typically when you, you know, see thrash or later, like, you know, black metal, death metal bands doing covers of seventies bands, they really oomph it up or do something to it to put their fingerprints on it. And the Megadeth one is just like, wow, it's like, Literally just listening to like less good Alice Cooper right now. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I like Megadeth though. I mean, as Megadeth, I I like them as a yeah, band. It's just yeah, yeah, they're my favorite band. I agree. Like this cover is restrained because like, they had done covers before and so like these boots that was on the oh, that's album. a great it's cover, fucking man. amazing, you know. First album. Yeah, yeah, shocker! What a fucking. <laughs> what else is there to say? <laughs> I just wish it had a gimp outfit in it. I might have saved it like people under the stairs did. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, that looks like it's going to wrap up our thoughts on this movie as well. And uh, that means it's... So Moser won. <laughs> yeah, Moser. Ah, yeah, yeah. hands are fucking down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, well, that's going to close out this episode, but before we get out of here, let's find out what everyone else has going on for people to listen to. So, uh, Venom, what else is coming down the pipeline for you? All right, well, on Fresh Cuts, our latest episode of Fresh Cuts is currently available. We look at the latest uh, entry in the Saw franchise, which is, of course, Spiral, starring Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson. Check that episode out. Our next episode will be on Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, which just dropped on Netflix this weekend. It actually did have a short theatrical run in New York, L.A., Chicago, you know, the the the, the, the big three cities whenever something gets a limited release. It actually did play in a couple of theaters out here in L.A. Unfortunately, casinos opened up at the same time, and anyone who knows me knows that I am an absolute poker whore, so as soon as the casinos opened, I was there. So unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see Army of the Dead in theaters, but I will definitely be watching it this weekend on Netflix. Uh, like I said, that'll be the next episode. 
Um, In the Mike of Madness and Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space are both on extended hiatuses right now. Um, As uh, Derek mentioned earlier, Rebecca Reinhart is uh, hard at work with indie horror projects. Uh, As soon as they finished up the Embalmers, she jumped on her next project, Tin Roof, which is what she's working on now. So not sure when that show is going to be back, but fingers crossed it's uh, sooner than later. Same with Underwater Kaiju. That one just seems to be more of a scheduling conflict. It's not like anybody actually said, I'm taking a break. It's just getting the four of us together in different parts of the country is never an easy task. So hopefully that'll be back uh, also sooner rather than later. And then uh, the final thing for me is It's Not Horror Okay, my uh, movie commentary podcast with uh, Neil and Heather and Scott and various members of Um, NFW and the Friday Nightmares podcast on our latest episode, we looked at basketball, uh, Matt Trey and uh, the Matt Stone and Trey Parker uh, comedy from a few years ago. That was a pretty fun one. Uh, The episode before that, we looked at Porky's and I'm not even sure what we're doing. Oh, right. And then on the next episode, because the next episode records in the first week of June, which is also which also coincides with the Westminster Kennel Club National Dog Show, which will be occurring on June 12th. Uh, we're going to go ahead and do Best in Show, the Christopher Guest uh, mockumentary about oh, dog Oh, I shows. love that movie. Oh, it is an absolute favorite of mine. So, yeah, that's going to be the next commentary for It's Not Horror, Okay. And um, let's see, I have a guest spot coming up on uh, the same uh, video game podcast that Mike was on uh, a couple of weeks ago, Controllers uh, Up, Cards Down, or is it Controllers Down, Cards Up? I don't know. It's one of those. Um, But yeah, uh, I'll be making my guest appearance on that um, in a couple, not even a couple of weeks, in like 10 days. Uh, And then that'll be out hopefully shortly after on the Legion Podcast Network. So check that out. That one's also a video podcast. So you'll be able to see that on YouTube as well. If anybody's interested in what Mr. Venom's beautiful face looks like. Um, And I think that's all I have for now. I know I do have a series of guest spots coming up on Cut to the Chase um, between now and December. But uh, nothing about that's been announced yet. So I'm going to keep that under my hat for now. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's my turn, Mike, right? That's Mike's cue. <laughs> I'll just go since he's there. Yeah, yeah it's you, Derek. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, of course, I'm the lead host on Cinema Attack. Uh, we have a fucking commentary out where we watched and survived Uli Bull's Blood Rain 2, which... Maybe Shocker's a better movie then, but... Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> Blood Rain 2 is pretty bad. It has Zach Ward from A Christmas Story, Scott from A Christmas Story, playing Billy the Kid as a vampire with a Hungarian accent. And Michael Pare's Pat Garrett. That's all I remember from that fever dream. Uh, then... Uh, they're here. We actually just record the same day as this episode is being recorded. Me and Miss Lacey Lou have done an episode on uh, found footage films, and we each picked one that we haven't seen before. She picked Catcher Kill Release, and I picked Exist. Uh, fun discussion, actually. Went a bit of while on Exist because it was a first time watch for Lacey. So she has some questions. Uh, then uh, No More Room in Hell, of course. 
coming back up with another episode soon for you guys. And a few guest appearances I've been doing. Uh, of course, like Venom said, Underwater Kaiju is on hiatus, so he already mentioned it. But uh, a few guest appearances that I've been doing. been doing a series with Mr. Bo Ransdale on the Legion podcast on the show Hero Hero Go Show, where I've been doing the One Miss Call uh, films and even the TV series. We're actually in the TV series. That episode should be out next week where we covered episodes one through five of the One Miss Call TV series. Then we're going to go through six through ten on the episode after that. Then we're going to end it with the final film, uh, One Miss Call Final, which is the final film in the original trilogy of movies. Uh, just doing them in order. So, yeah, it was actually interesting. We got to watch the TV series for that. And of this recording, the final episode of... Uh, the William Castle box set series I've been doing with Duncan over the podcast under the stairs should be out. And, uh, we're going to be taking a break from that because, uh, me and Venom actually are going to be on the summer series this year for the teapots summer series, looking at the 2010s, yeah. which, yeah, we're going to have a lot of discussions and there's going to be a lot of controversy because some of the movie picks that we've seen that haven't been released to the public yet, because I know there's going to be a lot of comments on those lists when they get published. Yeah. It's funny. As soon as uh, Duncan announced the list, the, the argument back and forth between different hosts, how could you not pick this movie? How could you pick this movie? That's not even horror. Ah, uh, it was so awesome. Yeah, wait till those get released <laughs> to the actual Facebook page. Then it's going to be really fucking war. Oh, yeah. There's there's one major movie that uh, we omitted in 2011 that we're already getting heat over. But I will defend it. I will defend its omission to the death. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it yet because I'm sure that's going to create for uh, some really good conversation, some good arguments when we. Let's just put it this way: I'll give you a little hint. A certain director who had a lot of movies in that decade, none of his movies made any lists. Yeah, just go back and look at the biggest horror films from 2011, and when you see the biggest one. That one probably didn't make our top 12 of the year, and that I, I can already tell it's going to be very controversial. But I, I have my reasons for defending that omission. You, you know I bring – I always I always back up my arguments, so uh, hopefully uh, this one will be just as valid as well because I, I vehemently believe that this movie does not deserve to be in the top 12 for, for 2011. But that's a conversation for another podcast. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it should be interesting. Oh, but yeah. that's about it for me. A few other guest spots lined up. I actually have another series, uh, another podcast. So it's going to be exclusive to uh, some certain Patreon page. But I'm going to leave that out till it gets officially announced, per se. All right. All right, X, you're back in the podcasting world, easing back into it. But I'm sure, you know, the more you get out there, the more people are going to be asking for your services. So what do you currently have going on for people to listen to? Uh, you can find me and my lovely co-host, my wife, Cootie Bug. We host Kiss the Goat, which is our podcast about devil movies. On Saturday, we've released our latest episode, which deals with Mario Bava's 1973 movie, Lisa and the Devil. And on that episode, you can hear Cooties say, oh, she's humping your knee. Also, I have a guest shot coming up on Cinema Beef Podcast. We're recording that later this week. And golly, that's pretty much it. You can find us wherever fine music is sold. 
<laughs> yeah, I I wouldn't expect uh, that light of a schedule for too long unless you're keeping it that way on purpose. Because uh, once people start hearing you again, especially all the people that are, you know are younger and newer that maybe didn't hear your run initially back when we all started getting into this what a, a little over a decade now god yeah it's been something like that uh, yeah so i feel like but, such uh, old guard <laughs> oh oh i know but it seems like our era is like having a, a little bit of a renaissance period where we're all kind of getting back i mean i i never completely stopped but i my output did lesson quite a bit for a while but uh you know you're you're getting back into it jamie is coming back so you know it's it's good times again i guess i guess so yeah Yeah, with that said though man thanks for joining us on this uh this episode i was you know when you were starting to come back and release kiss the goats episodes i was definitely like in the back of my head i was like oh man i i would love to get x on here but i I, I was afraid, like it was, it was too soon to start asking you, and then Derek went ahead and did it for me, <laughs> unbeknownst to me. So thank you, Derek, for uh, approaching X with the request. <laughs> it's whatever, Thanks like to both of you for that. Derek's a man of action. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm like but, you know this is a Mike's picks. I need a Mike picks rant for this episode, <laughs> and I got it. So that's all I. That's all that mattered. Well, I had, a, I had a very good time. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. Yeah, man. Come back anytime. And what I usually tell the guests is if if you come back, I'll let uh, you pick the movies. So, um, yeah. So that, that'll that be the case if you ever show back up on No Coming More Coming soon. Hell. Patrick Still Lives is one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick Trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, we're going to descend back down to the Lake of Fire. It's time to get out of here. So uh, we will be back hopefully in about two, three weeks with episode 33. Until then, the show's over. Everyone say goodbye to the listeners. Bye, and make sure you don't get any albino care bear girls. <laughs> Rest in peace, Lyle Alzada. Peace. My favorite raider. <laughs>